They come from a dying world. They drift through the universe, pushed on by the solar winds. They adapt, and they survive. The function of all life is survival. Sleep. 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 From deep space, the seed is planted. Terror grows. Invasion of the body snatchers. Now, the classic fear begins to grow. We're being cornered. In a modern masterpiece of science fiction. They're barricading the street. Invasion of the body snatchers. Get down. Starring Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Leonard Nimoy. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. From deep space, the seed is planted. Terror grows. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. I'm Ben Reiser, talking to you from Madison, Wisconsin, where I uh, work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, showing you movies all the time, either through UW Cinematheque or once a year, and this year it's going to be in May, and it's going to be online, but it's still going to be a thing, it's the Wisconsin Film Festival. And uh, sitting across from me, sort of, I guess, virtually... Yeah. Um, is my co-host. Introduce yourself, sir. Hey, uh, I'm Scott Lucas. I'm in a band called Local H. We have a new record out. It's called Lifers. Uh, I write about movies sometimes. I have in the past for Chicagoist. And uh, I write little bullshit on Twitter. So, I mean, you can follow me there if you want to check out and see what I think of, I don't know, Wonder Woman. I mean, I don't know. Does anybody care? anymore <laughs> well if people have been following you this week on 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 your popcorn dick feed is that but do you sometimes put the same stuff on scott lucas and popcorn dick yeah i put them both on the same the both the same thing is pretty much on both of those but i had a really hard time getting people to follow popcorn dick um, well which i understand you know. I get it. When people hear this, there'll be at least another five people that will sign All right, up for good, Popcorn good. Dick. That's the kind of <laughs> loyal fan base we have here at 70 right. Movies on the 70s. But anyway, if people had been uh, reading you this week, then they probably have a pretty good idea of what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. You've been, you've been researching and then writing about your research, and it's been exciting for me to see. Yeah, you weren't supposed to see that. <laughs> yeah, no. uh, oh, well. So I thought we would... Uh, uh, make this a shorter show than last week. Uh, um, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. Yeah, with maybe maybe a few less detours into obscurity. But um, I do want to clear up a couple things from our last episode, just because I've heard it a couple times and I keep writing, the, oh, fuck, I need to like clear that up. Oh, uh, so the Wrens were not on Bar None. Uh, okay. The biggest label they were on is Saddle Creek. But they were on Bar None because they were part of a They Might Be Giants tribute album, which was a Bar None release. Uh, yeah, I would not have had that They Might Be Giants 
tribute record. That's not something I ever would have listened to, <laughs> looked at, picked up. None of that. Yeah. Is there? Is, are there any They Might Be Giants songs that passed Scott Lucas? No. Wow. Wait. Okay, well, they, no. the Wrens covered They'll Need a Crane, which I think is one of the... One of maybe a half dozen They Might Be Giants songs that I think is pretty good. Well, the Wrens are great, and... Uh, they if they could, if they could pick out the diamond in that rough, they'd be able to. <laughs> they'd be able to do that. You know, is it? That's another two-piece band. I don't know what you're. You know, they, they should be your your compatriots. Uh, we played with them once. Giant. You did? Yeah, we. Yeah, I always. I and I still do. I always used to like to play with two-piece bands. I remember getting to play with uh, Ween in Philadelphia, and I was so excited. And then they weren't a two-piece band anymore so yeah i was kind of bummed out well and the thing about they might be giants i think they eventually did put together like a touring band uh, i think but, you're right but but when they were a two-piece they were like the shittiest kind of two-piece band and that they would use a drum machine you know neither one of them played drums so did win okay well i we, think uh steve albini used to use a drum machine Listen, Big Black I, had a drum machine. I saw I saw Jesus and Mary Chain one tour with a drum machine. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It was not good. Um, <laughs> isn't that a isn't that a isn't that a like a, a red line in the sand for you like a drum machine on stage instead of an actual drummer? Uh, yeah. But you know, one of these days, I'm probably going to have to embrace it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what about a guitar machine? Could free you a guitar machine? More, yeah, like just so you could, you know, just do stage moves the whole time and do like a Roger Daltrey thing. You wouldn't have to worry about all that shit. Oh, yeah. No, nobody wants to see that, Ben. Nobody. Mm-hmm. No one's looking for that. So anyway, microphone. And then I stupidly said that the Soul Asylum album was called Grave Diggers Union. Of course, it's Grave Dancers Union. Um, that one right by my, right by me. I said something really egregious really bad uh i, I said instead of sydney pollock sydney lamette mm. and i i i apologize for that when i was talking about three days of the condor oh sure uh and then there was one other that, that was one right past me yeah there was one I, I can't believe you didn't stop me on that one there was one other that was really bad but you know i've learned to forgive myself in the last oh yeah couple of weeks no no i just i i you know I'm trying to head off. I usually like two weeks after a podcast, I start getting like a barrage of emails like, hey, dickweed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, so I, uh, you know, Soul Asylum, right? You, you have played with them more than that was the last tour that we did was with them before everything shut down. Our last show was with them in L.A. So as I mentioned last episode, I was on the road with them for a couple of weeks when Freddie Johnson was opening for them, and right. the Lemonheads were like the middle act, which I know in comedy is not a good thing, but in in rock and roll maybe it's not as bad to be. The it's middle. the best. The middle act is the best. You don't have to open, but you don't have to close, which are the two worst things to have to do. And a lot of it is about what time you get to sound check, right? No, I guess not. I guess as a headliner, it's the best because you get to sound check the latest. Well, head no headliner. You have to sound check first. You get there first. Oh, right, right. It's reverse. Yeah. So, but like, it's also good because you get you, you're the first there. You're the last to leave. But you all are also the first to eat, which is pretty good. 
So okay. like if you're that opener, you should probably eat before you sound check because right. by the time you're done sound checking, doors are opening because the headliner is taking so long to fucking sound check that you don't have time to, you know, eat much more than a chip dipped in salsa. Okay, well, good, because this brings me to this other thing I wanted to clear up from last week. Uh, but but what I wanted to say about Soul Asylum <laughs> was that the one thing I remember about them from from hanging out with them briefly was that they loved to play poker. Uh, and so that seemed to be one of the things that they did regularly on the road and would rope in whoever was hanging around to being on these poker games. Is that a thing that they're still doing? No, I didn't see that, but that really seems like a thing that they would do and... And that thing that they would have liked. Um, I don't know. Was there like a wasn't there like a poker uh, craze going on? Uh, would that have been around that time, or is that something that didn't happen until the two thousands? I think that didn't happen until two thousands when suddenly there started being like online TV poker. shows, so online which are online poker, but that you could like turn on TV and watch people play poker. Like I, I got a friend who was out of work. He was a bartender. He was out of work for a year. And he paid all of his bills by just winning on online poker for a whole year. He did this. Well, that, oh boy, we're going down so many paths. <laughs> but I just, I'm going to plug my friend, Mike Lustig, uh, who was in this band, Ruth Ruth. And he said he opened for yeah. you guys a couple times. Yep. We've played with him quite a few times. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. He said at least twice. Um, Maybe it was twice. I don't know. He, One for he, each Ruth. Yeah, uh, but he uh, after uh, he after rock and roll stopped paying the bills. I don't know if it ever actually paid the bills for him, but uh, mm-hmm. he became a professional poker player in Atlantic City for a while, and was living in Atlantic City and like you know basically living at the casinos, just fucking playing poker all the time. I, it's crazy. I went there one New Year's Eve because Elvis Costello was going to be playing at a casino in Atlantic City on New Year's Eve. And I was like, let's do this. And so I spent a couple of days with him there. I just could not believe the lifestyle. Like, I couldn't. Like, you never see the sun. It's, right. It's just the worst. But he was into it for a while. And he uh, doesn't do that anymore. No, no. He, then he was a dog trainer for a while. and. Wow. Now he's, uh, maybe he still does a, f- a little bit of dog training. Oh, oh, you know what he does now? He sells, he sells vinyl. <laughs> he's an really? He's one of these record guys, yeah. You know, the guy, I was just talking to somebody yesterday who's kind of like making it through this thing right now by selling vinyl. So, yeah. yeah well, vinyl's going to come up later on in this show. But, okay, but I quickly want to just say... So one of the other things in the Soul Asylum and the poker thing reminded me of this is that we were talking last week about bands and different priorities they have on the road. And I said, yeah, and there's, uh, you know, when I was out with Freddy, he taught me that, uh, you know, there were bands who were their priority was food and the other and other bands whose priority was drink and all that stuff. And you said, well, all bands priorities food. And yes, of course, everybody Mm -hmm. needs to eat. But what I was saying, and maybe you haven't discovered this, I'm, I'm sure you have some bands. Yes, everybody needs to eat, but some bands are like, I don't care. We're going to go to Waffle House and Cracker Barrel and just keep rotating those two places. Whereas there are other bands that are like interested in gourmet food and really seeking out like a nice place to eat wherever, whenever and wherever they can. Right. Okay. Right. Or or else you'll have some places where you, you, you like as soon as you see it on the itinerary, you go, oh, we're going back there. We're going to eat there because it was so good last time. Right. That happens a lot. And that's when you know that 
you're getting old. Right. But I mean, you have bumped into bands who are like, no, we're doing McDonald's, Cracker Barrel, and Waffle House, and we're, we're never thinking about going to nicer places. Oh, yeah. I mean, just on that last Soul Asylum tour, they were eating McDonald's every day, and, <laughs> you know, and we we're going to like, wow, there's this great place across the street. And like, well, what is it? It's like, it's this and that. And what did you guys have? Well, we had McDonald's. It's like, you know, that's why we got two people in the band, so we don't have to eat McDonald's every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, a couple more. Uh, Mark Goldblatt, who we uh, thought might have directed, I mean, edited Total Recall. Didn't edit Total Recall, but he did edit The Howling, Halloween 2, Terminators 1 and, Ter- and Terminator 2, Rambo 2, a.k.a. Ah. Rambo, Commando, The Last Boy Scout, True Lies, Showgirls, and Starship Troopers. So he was... He was a Jim Cameron guy, and he was a Paul Verhoeven guy. So yeah. That's, so he didn't do Total Recall, but he did Starship right. Troopers, which is better film. Yeah, I agree with you. And yeah. uh, But the guy who did direct, uh, edit Total Recall basically edited every other film that I didn't mention just now. So, so right. he, was a, he was a big editor, too. And, well, that, what, Goldblatt got to edit Rambo, so that meant he was editing uh, Jack Cardiff footage. Because Jack mm. Cardiff shot mm. Rambo, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Look at you. Uh, I like Jack Cardiff. He's great. Yeah. Leonard Rosenman, who we talked about because he wrote the score for Race with the Devil, uh, I got an inside tip that he was uh, James Dean's roommate, rumored to be James Dean's lover. Ah. And did the scores for Rebel Without a Cause and East of Eden. All right. It's pretty good. There you go. Oh, and the golfing the golfing buddies that we talked about in Dead of Night, they first appear together in Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. That's probably why I liked it so much. Uh, no, no. Okay, and then another and a major obvious uh, R V tie in movie that we forgot to mention would be Stripes, and we it was stupid for us not to mention because of course of course it's got Warren Oates in it and i believe warren, warren oates and warren oates is has a lot to do with the rv and stripes doesn't he isn't he like uh, or they steal it but like it's it's under his protection they steal it to go say yeah they they steal it and then he do they steal it to go save him or does he go save them they, they steal it to save they, him no 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 they steal it and then he goes to get it and then he's behind them enemy lines and they have to go back is that what happens yeah Warren Oates, the best drill instructor other than Arlie Ermey, who will come up today sh- as well. He sure will. He sure will. Movie. Uh, and then I never got around to watching Rosemary's Baby again this past week to see if the silhouetted baby carriage that's in the trailer is also in the movie. Uh, but I did watch that trailer, and I don't remember if I'd ever even seen that trailer before. It's a, what a weird trailer that is for that time. Like, it's a very strange trailer. Yeah, it's pretty good. I watched the It's Alive trailer this uh, week. Okay, because that's exactly what I was going to say, is that the, 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 the ad campaign that totally stole that image from Rosemary's Baby was It's Alive. Yeah. And Larry Cohen is going to come up later in today's conversation. Yes, he will. Okay, I'm done. We're, we're done with, with wrapping up last week, so we can start talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers 1978. Uh, directed yeah. by Philip Kaufman. And now I know that I saw this in a theater as soon as it came out, but you were younger than me. Well, what do you remember when you first saw this movie? 
It would have had to have been on TV, but I was aware of it and I saw every commercial and I wanted so badly to see it. You know, it was rated PG. I thought it was a kid's movie. I mean, in my mind, anything that was rated PG was a kid's movie. But when you watch it, that's not the way that the 70s were playing. You know, it yeah. wasn't like it is now. It was PG. It could have been anything was going on. Like the movies that I thought were rated R and I go back and look, it's crazy, right? Yeah. But, I mean, I've always known this was PG, and it always kind of shocks me how much they get away with it. You know? Yeah. Well, right. Not not, not even, even before we get into, like, any of the gore or violence or any of the nudity, uh, you used to just be able to say fuck and stuff all the time in a PG movie and not have to worry about it. And then... Right. And, how many times do they say fuck in all the president's <laughs> men? I know. It's crazy. And then, you know, this fucking scourge of the planet, PG-13, came along, and they started making all these rules for what couldn't happen in a PG movie. And one of them was that you couldn't say fuck more than once or something. Or maybe that's even PG-13. Maybe if you say fuck more than once, you go straight to R. Right. PG-13, you know, was supposed to, I thought, was supposed to, like, bridge the gap and make make it so I could see more movies that might have been R. Right. But... That's not what happened. Right. They just made PG movies, basically Disney movies. Right. You know, it, it, it was a mess. Real. But don't get me started on that NC-17 <laughs> stuff. Well, that can, that'll come up today, too, with Phil Kaufman. Yes, it will. Oh, boy, so much stuff to talk about in relationship to Invasion of the Body but, but I was aware of the movie, and I really, really wanted to see it. And I knew that since it was PG, I could go see it. But kind of where I grew up, we had the one theater, and so we had really limited access mm. as to what I was going to see. And if it didn't play at that theater, I was pretty much screwed. Right. Um, but do you remember, had you seen the 1956 version at that time in your life? Yeah. I was a huge, huge fan of the 1956 version. And they would show it a lot on Channel 9. And so I, I was already a big fan. Um, I'd seen it. A lot of times. And, you know, and it kind of had that sort of Twilight Zone type of thing. And I watched Twilight Zone all the time. So I was primed and ready for this movie. I wish I'd seen it. I think it would have done a number on me, though. How, how did you fare? Um, I, I, I loved it. I don't, I don't remember it doing a number on me. But I do. Here's the thing that I, that I remember me and all my friends. And it seemed like this was the thing that everybody talked about after they saw the movie. And it was the thing that everyone wanted to go see it again because of is the thing with the dog and the banjo playing. Right. Game. Like that shot was just like, oh, my God, this is the biggest mind blower ever. How did they do it? Right. <laughs> Such a shock. Uh, <laughs> you know, and now I watch it and it's almost like an afterthought. It's like, OK, that's cute. But, you know, that's not the best part of the movie. Well, I mean, it's really interesting because for until I'd watched it just recently and I read about it, uh, in my mind, it had always just been this quick shot of the dog and they superimposed his face on there. Like, I thought it was some kind of, you know, where they, they cut the frame yeah. out and then they'll superimpose another. That's what I thought it was. But it's not. It's a mask that they put on the dog and then they put peanut butter around its lips so that it would lick its lips. And it totally works, but... You know, it's it's just a mask. Yeah. It's brilliant. Well, there's all yep. kinds of there's all kinds of great practical effects in this movie. I mean, this is like the dream era, right? 
between now, between this mm-hmm. and the thing and, and Carpenter's the thing, it's like, you know, there's like the ultimate, like after, after decades and decades of working on, you know, practical effects, like they really had perfected a bunch of stuff and some guys had come along who really knew what they were doing and had great ideas. And, you know, then that, then sadly there became CGI and all that shit went out the window and. I mean, I'll take the cheesiest. Uh, what, so we, we, can, we can start talking about this uh, with the opening credits, which to me have always, I've always been of like two minds about. I, I remember the first time seeing this movie in a theater and thinking like, oh, okay, these, these opening credits are cool. I kind of dig them. I kind of dig this weird planet that we're on and these weird sort of, it's like a lava lamp to me, like the effects of the spores yeah. on this planet and then their journey through space. You know, it's a, I think that's kind of how he did oh, it. Oh yeah. With like a lava lamp. Yeah. Or they he, did he it. He talks yeah. about, I, you know what I was able to do is listen to Philip Kaufman's commentary track today, which I didn't realize. I didn't think to even oh. look for until today. And I was like, Oh yeah, it's yeah. on YouTube. And okay. Uh, oh, I'd love to listen to that. Yeah. He said they found this, uh, gel um and i forget what it's what what the practical use of this thing was not it wasn't like a film effect thing it was something they found like in a drugstore or something and it was like five bucks now, was it the thing it wasn't the thing that you put in those those levelers <laughs> no. was it was it something like no, that no no it okay. wasn't but it was it had some even goofier use but um it cost five dollars for this bottle of it that they bought and he <laughs> said it, he said it like got them through the whole film this one it's the and what he's wow. talking about actually is the stuff that once once the once we finally get down to earth and we start seeing plant leaves and we see like these like those gelatinous kind of spores that are on the leaves on the uh, right. I think that's what he's talking about. I don't know that, that that he's talking about the stuff that you see in outer space, but I don't know. But I I was always like this is cool, but it's also kind of cheesy, and I realize. I think one of the things that I always loved about this movie is sort of how sort of ambiguous it is for a long time about what's happening, if there's anything happening, you know, are these people paranoid or are they not? And I'm watching it this week, I was like, well, no, it's it's not a half as ambiguous as I thought about, thought it was. Like, they, you know, they, right. they, they come on pretty strong with the science fiction. Right. I mean, there's a part of me that wishes that it could just start, you know, with the shots of San Francisco. Yeah. Like almost, almost like it was Fatal Attraction or something, where you just start and you don't know what's going to happen. But I, you know, I, I think that they were kind of like the people aren't going to sit for this long. Yeah, you know, even though it's called Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I mean, I, I, I don't know what they think people would be doing. They're like, what's happening in this movie? It's called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You know what's going yeah, to happen. No, and do you really need the zoom right, to Earth? That's exactly what I was thinking, and that's exactly what I wrote. I was like, I really, I really wish this movie started in San Francisco, and you know, yeah. and 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 to me, it felt like maybe that was the original plan because there are all those shots at the beginning after we come down from space in San Francisco in the rain, and you see all those people. 
And that's when the credits start. And I was and I was thinking, or the credits end just around then. And then we get all credits these end, right. we get all these shots without any dialogue. And I and I kept thinking, I wonder if these were the shots they were originally going to have the credits over. And then the studio was like, No, we need to start in outer space. And and again, I thought just like you, I was like, Well, it's it's called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So on the one hand, there's no reason to be ambiguous because people already know what movie they're in. And on the other on the other hand, like it would be super cool. If we didn't have this outer space crapola at the beginning. Right. There's no reason to dr- drive But it I will say that that listening to uh, Philip Kaufman today, he doesn't say that at all. He's like totally into that, the first couple outer space shots. So, Oh, he yeah. was. Well, I think he had a problem with the credits being over that. Yes, I think his he did. initial idea was that they're going to be the credits and then the space stuff, right. right? Yeah. He's like, I wish you guys yeah. could watch this without the credits over these shots. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> Was there going to be a credits crawl and then that, or was the credit? Was he thinking the credits wouldn't come until the end, like Apocalypse he doesn't now say or something like that. He doesn't okay. say. But okay, so um, on an unidentified planet, a strange life form in the shape of gel-like spores drifts up into the atmosphere, where it moves slowly through space, drifting until it reaches Earth. The spores enter the atmosphere and are swept downward, emerging in a rainstorm in San Francisco. On the ground, the spores begin to develop, growing on leaves of earthly plants and taking the shape of small pods with a pink flower in the middle. I dig, I, the thing that I like about the, the outer space stuff is it kind of reminds me of those weird macro photography movies in the early 70s, like Phase 4 with the ants and the Hellstrom Chronicle, mm-hmm. where you get these crazy close-ups of like insects and stuff, and it would feel like you're watching a... Some kind of weird space creature, but they're actually just... It reminds me of some of the shots in Tree of Life, where, you know, these things are moving around. But even if that stuff wasn't in it, as soon as you see Robert Duvall in the, in the, his uh, priest garb um, on that right. swing, like, then you know something's fucked up. Like, they don't, you know, <laughs> there's something weird going on. You know something's fucked up, and you also know something's fucked up by the sound design. You've got all the sounds going, and, and you've got... Uh, What's her face? Adams picking that flower. And then and then you've got this the teacher with the kids and she looks at her and you you're like, are already people are turning into pod mm-hmm. people? And then and then the sound design sucks out all those sounds and all you can hear is the the swing of the the, the sound of the the metal swing. Yeah. And what I love the sound design is amazing. The sound design is amazing. And what I was realizing, what is so great about that swing, is that the sound of that metal swing really is, could easily be part of the experimental score that this guy has created for the movie. Like, it, it, it's right. very close to, like, the actual musical score of this film. And you don't know where the sound design ends and the music begins in a lot of this movie. And I love that about it. Exactly. That goes on with the, the screams. Like you hear the screams before you actually see anybody screaming. Mm-hmm. And and what's that that sonogram sound? Yeah. With the the sucking, you hear that before the actual scene shows up where you go, "Oh, that's where that sucking weird throbbing noise is coming from." So it's part of the score. It's like they're uh they're foreshadowing things sonically for you. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I, I, who, who did that? The, the sound design that was a guy. That's that, a good question. The, the guy who did the score is this guy Denny Zietlin, who's a jazz pianist, but also like a 
a professor of, um, I don't know, psychiatry or something. He was a, he's okay. just a friend of Philip Kaufman's, and this is the only soundtrack he's ever done. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, but I don't know. Ben, the sound design is, is somebody else. Sound designer is Ben Burt, who had oh, worked on- Oh, there you on, go. He had Man. worked on Star Wars. Yeah, he's uh, the ultimate. Right. And so those sucking sounds were his son's sonogram, actually, is, is what that was. But that's the thing. You know, it, it happens before when I think it happens. It, it, it's, it's really, it's, it's terrific. So, like, what he does, he puts all those sounds on top of that score, and you can't, like you say, you can't tell the difference between where one begins and one ends. Yeah, and he also does the same thing visually where he's, even when you're just watching, like, the food inspection and other sort of non-sci-fi elements, everything is shot at weird angles. Everything's like, you know, you're, it's hard to see some things that would normally be obvious in a shot, and he's always shooting through mirrors and reflected mm-hmm. glass, and uh, everything everything feels sort of off-kilter and alien from the get-go. Uh, yeah. So... People so are he does peeking it, he, through windows. It's like, who's that looking through a window? Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's terrific. So Elizabeth Driscoll, played by Brooke Adams, notices one of the pods, taking it back to the home she shares with her boyfriend, Jeffrey, Art Hindle. Uh, unable to find the flowering pod in any of her botany books, she hesitantly identifies her new find as a crossbreeding of two different species, a grex. I would have, if you had asked me before I watched it again this week, I would have sworn that it's not that they're boyfriend and girlfriend, but they totally seem like a married couple, don't they? I mean, he's completely ignoring her all the time. It's a weird thing. I mean, I guess, I guess reflecting on what the scene was in San Francisco, yeah, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. But of all the actors that I get confused with each other, like um, uh, Dylan McDermott and Dermot Mulroney, uh, I think the I think I always have the hardest time with Brooke Adams and Karen Allen, who it's not because of their names, because their names are not that similar, but they're just like insanely similar to me in every other respect. Uh, they well, look, they're the, yeah, they're they're a type, right? The, there's there's those two, and then you could add Margot Kidder to that type. Yes, and right. I I, I think. I mean, if I had to pick one, and apparently we do, it would have to be Karen Allen. I mean, that, that's kind of the thing why, why Brooke Adams never really... I, mean, I know she's in Dead Zone, right? She, she's in Dead yeah. Zone, right? Yeah, let's have I, this fight. I, I never really dug her because I was always kind of like, can't we just have Karen Allen do this instead? Yeah, I don't, I'm not picking any. I love all three of them. And, Mar- and Margot Kidder, for me is distinctive enough from those other two that I never, I, I get it. I get why she is similar to them, but I never, I never mis- mistook her for either one of them and, and never have a hard time remembering which movie she's in. But Karen and, Allen could have been Lois Lane, right? And somebody, well, that's could true. have They could have cast Margot Kidder or Brooke Adams as Marion Ravenswood. That could have happened. Yes, yes, that totally could have happened. Totally could have happened. But but uh, but Brooke Adams and Karen Allen, to me, like even more so, were sort of coming up at almost exactly the same time. But I'll say, as we, uh, I'll I'll say that what I know that you you're not a big Dead Zone fan. I am, <laughs> and but I think that Brooke Adams in the Dead Zone is what makes the Dead Zone not chilly and not 
and 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 very emotional. She's got the one scene where she visits Christopher Walken, and he's still in the rehab joint. Uh-huh. And I think that they have sex. No, uh, whatever. She visits him, and he, you know, then she drives away, and she stops, and she's in her car, and she there's just this scene of her. She stops her car. And she's just seen him and she's crying. And I think that that's an amazingly emotional scene. And I think her performance there is brilliant. And then I think that the whole ending of that movie is is fantastic because of Brooke Adams and because of how emotional she is in the very last scene of the movie where she's at Johnny's gravesite. Um, and... And I know that Stephen King's not a big fan of the Dead Zone movie, and I always thought it was because uh, the guys who wrote the screenplay figured out a better way to have the third act of that movie work as opposed to the book. Where in the book, it's not that Brooke Adams' character works for the Martin Sheen character, and she's not really present in the last section of the novel. Uh, but in the movie, having her be part of the campaign and having her be there when Johnny dies and all that stuff, I just think that's that's a much smarter. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, so what's weird about this though is that um, Philip Kaufman has Brooke Adams in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and then the next year he does The Wanderers, and he's got Karen Allen. So he uses ah. each of them one after the other. Which so he definitely had a type at least. Yeah, at least in that yeah. period of time for his movies. But, uh, you know, what's interesting to me about this movie, tons of things, but one of, but one of them is this whole Cronenberg connection to this movie. We did an episode uh, not too long ago uh, about Ice Castles, which is a movie I had never seen until, uh, until last month. <laughs> um, but my sister and Mike's sister were big fans, and Mike was actually a big fan of it. And watching it, I was amazed at how many people from from Dead Zone and Cronenberg movies in general were in Ice Castles, which which and 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 Ice Castles predated any of the any of Cronenberg's use of people in that movie. But like Tom Skerritt is in Ice Castles, and Colleen Dewhurst is in Ice Castles, and they're both in Dead Zone. And there's a guy who looks exactly like the guy who plays Frank Dodd in the Dead Zone. Uh, but the same thing is kind of true here. Like Jeff Goldblum is in this and um, Brooke Adams is in this. Um, and then I realized that everyone, all the principals in this cast are in this movie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I think is one of my all-time favorite and I think it's one of the all-time best science fiction horror movies. But they're all at least in one other of my favorite and I think most important uh, horror movies or science fiction movies. So Donald Sutherland is in this and in Don't Look Now, which might Mm -hmm. be my favorite out of everything. Uh, And Brooke Adams is in this and The Dead Zone. Jeff Goldblum is in this and The Fly. Veronica Cartwright is in this and Alien. And The Birds, right? And The Birds, sure. Yep. Art Hindle is in this and The Brood. Right. And Leonard Nimoy Nimoy is in this and well, I don't know, he's not really in any other he's in Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean all the leads are pretty quirky, you know. I mean they're all terrific. And it's really well cast, but but you know there's that thing uh like just a lot of the 
people in the same movies. They start to know each other. And so when you, you look at a, a section of four to five years, the yeah. same people keep showing up. And it's kind of like what goes on now. I remember for a year, every movie I saw had Claire Foy in it. I'm like, right. well, who the fuck is Claire Foy? And I had no idea until I started watching The Crown a couple of months ago. And so you've got these actors like Brooke Adams that studios are trying to push push them on us. Like, this is the new It Girl. This is the next one. And so everybody casts this person, and then it either catches on or it doesn't. And you never hear from these people again. Um, right. And, and Karen Allen, same thing. Karen Allen, although, you know, when she kind of she's kind of cemented in there because of Marion, so she she can walk away. But yeah, Karen Allen, she's she's in all that stuff. I forgot that she was in uh, the Wanderers. I'm not a huge Wanderers fan. I I kind of I I uh, I love Richard Price, and specifically I love the book The Wanderers. So that movie really gets on my tits. It's, uh, it's just, I, I hate the tone of it, and it surprises me. Sometimes I can't even believe it's Philip Kaufman. Like, what, what is he doing with all these, with, it's like like it's a cartoon or something, and all these moldy oldies. It just takes everything that's honest about that book and buries it in a bunch of bullshit. I, I don't get it. Well, for me, like, my Philip Kaufman appreciation began and ended with Invasion of the Body Snatchers up until this week where I sort of crammed in Rewatching or or watching for the first time a bunch of his other movies. I had seen The Wanderers last year finally for the first time. Oh, really? It was and the first uh, time. yeah, I don't know why I I don't know why I'd never seen it. Uh, it's strange that I hadn't. All my friends did. I just somehow missed it. I may not be a fan, but that shot of the the father th- swirling around the 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 uh, other guy trying to hit people with him. That that is great. We tried yeah. to buy that to be the record cover of our new record, and they wouldn't sell. But but I love that that image. Anyway, forget it. There's also um, I didn't rewatch it again this week, and my memory is such that I'm like, oh brother. But it, it isn't there a sequence in the Wanderers where one of the guys is getting chased and end, ends up getting killed? Yeah, not to ruin. The, but isn't isn't it isn't that very body body snatcherish that whole sequence? Because those, it's like the, he's in the wrong side of town, and it's yeah, like, the duck. That's one of the good things that that movie gets. That's one of the things that that movie gets right, in my opinion, is the Ducky Boys stuff is pretty scary, and yeah, and the fact that that guy dies is was, I guess, shocking. Yeah, but it, I think it was to me that. watching it. Well, and, what and, Philip Kaufman did you watch this week? Well, this week I watched, or I okay, I'll tell you, I watched the unbearable lightness of being, mm-hmm. which How's that is up? well, I'll tell you, it's one of the. It's I was talking about this with my wife. Uh, we saw it in New York City when it was released, and it was we were in Manhattan doing something else, and we went. It was. It was like a late show. It must have been like at least nine o'clock at night or ten o'clock or something, and it might have been at the Ziegfeld. Uh huh. Um, 
Well, we walked out after 20 Oh, really? Minutes. Yeah, we were so not into this movie. And my memory of it, and my memory of why we walked out, is it just seemed insanely pretentious. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and, it was, and my memory of it was, it was one of these movies where the characters are always addressing each other by their names, which always seems so unnatural to me. It's always like, you know, Richard, you are Richard. Like, they're always right. saying each other's names to each other, which... I also remember about that movie, The Accidental Tourist, uh-huh. uh, was another one of these movies. I'm like, why is everyone saying each other's names <laughs> when they don't have to say each other's names anymore? Uh, but watching it, so then I never had seen the rest of it. And so uh, I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. And I was happy to realize that, oh, this is what I was happy to realize about Philip Kaufman this week. And I watched The Right Stuff again, which I hadn't seen in forever. And um, I watched uh, <laughs> Rising Sun, which is a piece wow. of shit. But wow. yeah. Um, but what I realized about Philip Kaufman, which I hadn't realized, is that he, it's not that he suddenly stopped having a sense of humor. Like, there's humor throughout all of those later movies of his. I just didn't really get it the first time around. Like, I didn't realize how funny the right stuff is at times. And, and there's tons of stuff in the first half of Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is you know, told is to, totally played as like a comedy, as like a sort of a bedroom farce, and uh, yeah, it's it's like after he always had a, like a strain of art house in him, but after the right stuff, he just totally went European art cinema, yeah. and yeah, like when you watch Unbearable Lightness of Being, you know, I almost sometimes get the feeling, like when I first saw it, I almost got the feeling that it was dubbed. Like, it just mm-hmm. felt like it was this foreign Czechoslovakian or Russian film that was dubbed. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he kept that up with Henry and June. So, I mean, he's always been pretentious. You know, there's always an air of pretense about the guy. Well, he, he it seems like he did, he has a very similar trajectory in ways to Cronenberg, which at some point they were like, oh, I'm just going to do these literary adaptations Mm -hmm. and I'm bailing out of my genre fixations and I'm just going to start adapting these sort of high class literary works. Right. But Uh, he never really had, I mean, other than this, he never really had any genre. What what was the other genre movie that he would? Yeah. I mean, a Western. Well, I mean, he had a Western and the Wanderers is what is like a sort of coming of age, you know, nostalgia thing, which is yeah. But I mean, technically, it's a it's it's an adaptation of a, a work of great fiction. Well, that's true. <laughs> it is true, and and so is this actually. Have oh, you that's ever right. Read, have you ever read the Jack Finney novel? I, I have not read it. Have you? I downloaded it and was gonna, but didn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm curious to read read the ending because uh, everything that I've read about the ending. The aliens just give up and go home. Yes, they're like that's what I've read too. This is too much. Now my question is, and do they just do they give up because we're too tenacious, or do they give up because it's like oh, it's never going to work with these guys? They're impossible to work with. You know, right? It's I, that's what I I thought I thought I read it was because we were too tenacious, but it could be more like what you're saying. You know, but it's kind of like War of the Worlds, where like oh wait, the common right. cold is going to fuck us up, so we're we're out of here. Right, but you know, like you were talking about with Dead Zone, it's 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 a case of correcting a problem with the book, and you know, it's the same thing like with Jaws. I don't know if you've ever read Jaws, yeah, but they do not blow up the shark at the end, right? 
the shark just dies on its own and it's coming closer and closer to Brody and by the time it gets there it's dead so it just sinks that's right. not a great way to end a movie right and and Hooper fucks Brody's wife and then dies great perfect <laughs> uh, I, I would have uh, that would be the change if uh, you could make one change that would be it that that would still be in there is that a game that people play make one change to your favorite movie it could Should be a game yeah uh, so anyway, Matthew Bennell, played by Donald Sutherland, is an inspector for the health department who uncovers unsanitary conditions at a French restaurant. So Bennell, is that supposed to be Bennell? Oh, good thinking there. Uh, I don't know. And, and, and I know they changed his first name, uh, from Miles, which it is in the 56 version and maybe the book too, to Matthew. But I don't know. I can't remember if the if the Benel is 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 a holdover from those other versions. Well, Benel is the last name in the first version. Oh, it is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so Benel, this is sure. actually kind of a. I mean, and I didn't realize it until I put them both together. But it's kind of a faithful at a uh, faithful remake. Yeah, and a lot of the characters are still there. The yeah, the situations are the same. It's pretty respectful. Yeah, and I think maybe the big difference is moving it from a small town to a big city, and I think that that's a brilliant move and and opens up a whole other, you know, a wide world of possibilities, which they take advantage of. Yeah. And it really changes the whole thing fundamentally while still being, you're right, a very sort of faithful adaptation. Um, So as he threatens the owner with indictment over finding rat droppings in the food, the other employees (laughs) quietly slip out to the parking lot and smash Matthew's windshield with a bottle of wine. And when he gets home, he calls Elizabeth. They work together at the health department, and Matthew jokes with her about what happened to him at the restaurant. As Elizabeth goes to bed, she forgets about the weird pod, which has suddenly sprouted roots in the glass of water. She keeps it in next to their bed. I love that broken windshield. Yeah. I love that it sort of mimics the sort of tendrils that come out from the pod. And, I didn't you know, think of that. That sort of spider webby tendril thing. Um, and I, but I, I really want us to talk about Chinatown one of these days. But one of my favorite things about that movie is that once Jack Nicholson's nose gets sliced open, he has to deal with it, and we have to deal with it as an audience for the rest right. of the movie. Like we're seeing this fucking thing on his nose for the rest of the movie. And similarly, here, once Do- once Donald Sutherland's windshield gets broken, it's broken for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And we we have scene after scene of him in that car driving with that broken windshield. And I just think that that's something they don't do often enough in movies, like where we have to live with the consequences right. of an action. Right. And things and disappear also like similar, it's a cartoon or something. Yeah, and also in this movie, much closer to Chinatown is that once Jeff Goldblum's nose starts bleeding and he has to stick some toilet paper up it to to keep it stanch, staunched, whatever he, mm-hmm. whatever that word is, uh, that's that's there for a while too, which is very much like Nicholson in in Chinatown. But that's another thing where it's like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna have this thing shoved up Jeff Goldblum's nose for like the next hour. Yeah, there's that <laughs> one scene where the camera is basically. Sutherland and Adams aren't even really part of the shot. It's all about the uh, the broken windshield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Um, that the restaurant inspection scene is really funny, um, and 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 that's another thing that 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 cemented it for me today. That oh yeah, that because Philip Kaufman's first couple of movies, which I still haven't seen, are I think straight out comedies. 
Yeah, I, I watched a little called. bit. Uh, oh, you did? Yeah, one of them is called Fearless Frank. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was shot in Chicago, uh, which is, is fun to watch for that reason. And it's also, uh, what's his name? It's first, John Voight's first movie. And he's very much like his character in uh, uh, Midnight Cowboy. But he turns into uh, a superhero called Fearless Frank. And it's it's uh, it's kind of it kind of reminded me of William Klein movies like Mr. Freedom. It, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 interesting. It's a curio, as they say, you know, the, the Chicago uh, locations are pretty cool, too. You should check it out. I will. Actually, I, I, I found it. And then it's just one of the ones I didn't get. I didn't get to this one. And I didn't get to the Western. The great. That looks good. It looks yeah. like the Long Riders. Yeah. And it's got Duvall. So. Yep. As like Jesse James. Robert Duvall is Jesse James. Is he Jesse James or is he? He's, he's something. He's one of the younger class. No, no. He's like Jesse James. He's like one of the. He's either Billy the Kid or Jesse James. He's one of it's the two main. Gotta be Jesse the James. Gangsters. It's gotta yeah. be Jesse the James. Jesse the James. Yeah, that's reason enough to watch that. that that's got to be fantastic. So I realize another thing about this food inspection scene is that I've uh, I've avoided capers my whole life, <clears throat> and and I know it's got to be because of this movie where capers get get designated as rat turds. I, I didn't even know what a caper was when I saw the movie. I, yeah, I didn't either. No clue. No right. clue. I, I love that scene, and and that's one of the scenes that I think about when I think about this movie, but I don't like the fact that they telegraph that they're going to smash the guy's windshield. Yeah. And I don't like that. They telegraph that it's the black guy who they're all looking <laughs> to to do this. It's right. like, who are we going to get to break, go in an alley and break? Oh, get the black cook. He's the, uh, we have him in the kitchen just for such a purpose. Harold, we got a job for you. Yeah. Uh, so Elizabeth wakes the next morning. Jeffrey is already awake and dressed, cleaning up the remnants of the glass of water next to bed. At work, she confides to Matthew that Jeffrey is acting strange. Later that night, Elizabeth tries to talk it over with Jeffrey, but he ignores her, instead telling her that he's going out and giving her no explanation. Elizabeth touches him intimately and recoils from his emotionless response. Elizabeth rushes over to Matthew's house and insists that Jeffrey is no longer Jeffrey. On the outside, he looks the same, but inside, he's different. Matthew hears her out, but calms her by cooking a good meal and letting her vent. Yeah, you know the thing that the thing that struck me about watching the Don Siegel version this week which I did um I know that that had always that always has this reputation and I I remember from the very first time I watched it as a kid like either either my parents or my grandparents telling me or just I don't know, it just seemed to be out there in the ether that it, that most people thought of this as either like uh, an allegory about communism or an allegory about McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it had this whole political subtext. And, you know, I wasn't around in 56. I don't know how I would, you know, watching all of these body snatcher films right now, uh, there's all kinds of current events that I can read into, uh, you know, these movies. And oh, it's like, yeah. oh my God, this this seems like <laughs> this seems like we're talking about the events of last week right here yeah. in these movies. No, this movie these it would be like catnip for QAnon conspir conspiracists. I mean, they would <laughs> yeah. be all over this goddamn movie. Right. Uh, but watching the Siegel version divorced of that context of the fifties, uh, 
Like it doesn't feel political to me at all. And it's, it's interesting to me as to how much of it seems to be about male female relationships and I guess social mores. Uh, it's they go out of their way to make to make it clear that both of the uh, main characters um, Dana Winter and uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy are are recently divorced like they've both been to Reno recently to get divorced and and it really just seems to be if it's about anything it's about their relationship and I don't know, sort of. You can't go home again, or you, you know, you blew it. If you blew it, <laughs> you blew your opportunity with somebody. It might not come around again, or you might right. not have time. Yeah, but there's a lot of that moving back home type of thing, and mm-hmm. you know, all the this the stuff about being in the suburbs, um, and just sort of settling there and conforming there. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going in that movie, and the first time. I saw it. Nobody ever told me any of that stuff. And, you know, I didn't get that stuff. I just thought it was pretty terrifying. Yeah. Um, But I think it's there. I I really do. Some of it is just too on the nose for it not to be there. And the political stuff. Yeah. And if, if if it was a case, I mean, that stuff was tearing Hollywood apart. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it couldn't have not been something that Don Siegel wasn't aware of. I, I, just, I just don't believe it. I mean, it's possible that he, he pumped it up and fluffed it up later as something that he was trying to do and he didn't want to do that, but I don't know. I don't buy it. And, and, even, and even if that's the case, fine. You know, It, it doesn't really matter. It, 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 if he didn't mean to do that, it's certainly... It happened. Yeah, I totally, be- I totally see how it could be interpreted that way, and totally believe that that could have been on the mind of the screenwriter, who I think had been in trouble huh. yeah. uh, with the House of Un-American Activities. Uh, but I was only bringing this up to say that I really, out of all the things that Kaufman sort of has to figure out how to adjust to 1978 and adjust to life in the big city, I like the way he reinterprets the main relationship. The and and uh, you know the 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 the, right. the idea of Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams being these sort of work husband and wife thing and he's right. sort of her emotional friend like they're sort of having an affair that's not actually an affair right um i think that was a really smart sort of modernization of whatever that central relationship is in absolutely in the 56 at, at one point i began to wonder if they were having an actual affair actually and and yeah. i just i love that scene when they're when she's trying to tell him that that uh he's not right and he's about to go do something and he, and he goes what can I do when he when he says that to her? Like, what can I do? And she's like, Oh, yeah. nothing. Go on. And he's like, Okay. Yeah. I mean, that I, I love that line reading. I, I love that line. Breaks my heart. Well, and he, I think Sutherland is never better than he is in the scene where she comes to see him at his apartment. He's making dinner for them, and Brooke Adams is totally sort of like I'm like, uh, you know, if there's a, if I have any problem with her performance, it's this scene because she's so over the top and manic as she's trying to explain to him what it is about Jeffrey that she thinks is different. But he saves the scene for me by totally underplaying everything. And he's really just concentrating on his walk Mm -hmm. and those vegetables and like serving her up samples. And he's so 
cool and so and as, as an actor is just so deadpan and underplaying everything that he totally balances out her sort of over dramatic reading of 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 her lines yeah he's so um, fucking great he's really i mean i feel like i've been watching a lot of his stuff in the past couple of months for whatever reason he keeps popping up and uh i'm just always amazed at how did this guy happen how did somebody like donald sutherland become a movie star I'm so glad it happened, but I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but uh, he's great in everything. Yep. Yes, he really is. Um, and how great is it when Brooke Adams does that thing with her eyes? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. There's people people love that, don't they? They're like, is that real? Like, uh, what? How else would they have done it? Well, that's another thing Philip Kaufman talks about on his commentary is that, you know, that if they had to do that as a special effects, they as a special effect, they wouldn't have been able to afford it. But she just does that, and so they got that for free. <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. Uh, the next day, Matthew hears a strange story from the owner of the Chinese laundry he patronizes. His wife is not his wife. Later, he finds Elizabeth at the health department offices, shaken and obviously distraught. She reveals that she's been following Jeffrey that day. And has seen him having brief meetings with strangers, all of them passing unidentifiable parcels among themselves. She's convinced that there is some sort of conspiracy afoot and that Jeffrey is a part of it. Uh, I love the Chinese laundry scene. I love the performances by the husband and the wife. And then, uh, if I'm understanding what Philip Kaufman is saying on this commentary track, he's saying that they were actually, that the, that was an actual Chinese laundry and that they were actually launderers, the, those two. I love the way, after he said, it's not my wife, he... He he presses that button and, and that that coat just puffs up. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yes. Is that yeah. how they do dry cleaning? Yes. That's well. That's, that's it? I don't know. That's like that's like one step in the process. No, there's more <laughs> to it. But yeah, that's how. They, I guess that that might be how they clean the insides of those garments. Yeah, there's a lot uh, of good inanimate object bits in this movie, like like with the telephone cord going into the wall. Yes. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, and, yeah, and Kaufman talks about that on the commentary track that that phone cord and that it was just there, and they're like, "Oh, we got to shoot this. This is so creepy." Oh, yeah. Like that they were looking for those kinds of things all the time. The way that these normal everyday things can really be creepy if you just look at them by themselves or yeah. in the context of a horror movie. Right. So there's this one narrative convenience that bothered me this time for the first time. Here we I'm go. Not, I know. Here I am. My patented thing. This is Plot the only hole. one that I really have for this thing, and it's kind of just a goofy one. But you know, she's following Jeffrey all around town, right? And you know she she doesn't know where he's going, and we see like seven of these. And this meetings. is the scene where this is the scene where like the sucking sounds really come to the yeah. fore. By the way, but yeah, I'm sorry. Go on. No, no, that's fine. But in in encounter after encounter that Jeffrey has with these people, somehow Brooke Adams has found like the best spot to observe these things from. And she's like up on another level. She's usually higher than they are. And she's watching. And it's like, if you're chasing this guy around town, you don't know where he's going. How is it that you keep winding up in the perfect spot to like sort of, it almost looks like she's been on a stakeout for like hours, you know, and then they arrive. <laughs> Here at he comes. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, you know, that scene reminds me the most of parallax view. Doesn't it? That's got like, or, or well, not, maybe not the parallax view, more of the conversation. Is that what I'm oh, thinking? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Conversation, definitely. But there is something at the end that reminded me totally of the parallax view 
and I just thought for stupid reasons, when Sutherland is in the warehouse getting ready to blow everything up, he's up on this catwalk, just yeah. like Warren Beatty is at the end of Parallax View. And then I'm reading the New York Times review of the 78 Body Snatchers today, and Janet Maslin brings up that exact point. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, that's such a weird fucking connection uh, for a reviewer at the time to have made. But No, there's a lot of Parallax View in this movie, and the conversation, and all the Watergate stuff. Which Kaufman kind of downplays in interviews, but it's totally there, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, the San Francisco automatically puts it, you know, in the conversation yep. ballpark. But yeah. Uh, uh, bu- 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 Matthew wants to take her to meet his friend, a renowned psychologist named David Kibner. Matthew takes Elizabeth. Uh, that's played by Leonard Nimoy. Matthew takes Elizabeth to a book signing party at a local bookstore so she can meet Kibner personally. Excuse me. While stopped at a traffic light, a strange man, Kevin McCarthy, the star of the original movie, suddenly falls onto Matthew's car, screaming and pounding at the windows, warning they're coming. Something terrible. You're in danger. Before they can react, another vehicle comes along and strikes the man dead. Strangely, the crowd of people around him seem to not be affected by what has happened at all. Not even the motorcycle policeman who who arrives at the scene. And so ends Kevin McCarthy's 20-year journey of trying to warn people. Yeah. Yeah, it was all for naught. Um, so there's this joke. So this joke is a that's, sequel. Yes, not <laughs> a remake. This, it's a sequel. No, it is. It totally is. Yeah. Uh, there's this joke that Sutherland starts telling Brooke Adams before Kevin McCarthy interrupts right. him. Uh, it's something about Rommel and good news, bad news, uh, and then Philip Kaufman tells the whole joke on the commentary track. Do you want to hear this joke? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I do. Please. Okay, the English Camel Corps are trapped in the Sahara Desert. They've been surrounded by Rommel for 40 days and have run out of food. The captain makes an announcement to the men. Men, I have some good news for you and some bad news for you. The bad news is we have nothing left to eat but camel poop. The good news is there's plenty of it. There you go. Let's see. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's one of those ones that's better off having been interrupted. But yeah. that's a great that's a great strategy that gets me every time, even when I rewatch movies like this. It's a really smart horror movie thing to do to like put a scare into the middle of what is a comic scene. I mean, there's a lot of that that goes on with Jeff Goldblum in this movie. Uh, but but that too, like, you know, set it up by but distract the audience by telling them a joke and then halfway through the joke have like a jump scare where Kevin right. McCarthy jumps yeah, up. Yeah, jokes in horror films are really they really work. Like like there's that the joke in Cachet, the Michael Haneke film, where he t- tells this long, it's not a joke, but he tells this long story about, uh, well, it is a joke, but you don't know it's a joke until it happens, but about being reincarnated as a dog. And you're so keyed up at this point that when it gets to the punchline that that he says to feel there's a scar on the back of his neck, and when she goes to do it, he like snaps at her like a dog and barks at her. And... Uh, but it scares you, you know, it's like, because you're so keyed up. Yeah. Um, it's a good strategy. You're you're correct, sir. He And I think Haneke does that reverse strategy in um, Funny Games, where it's like, you're in the middle of watching the most horrifying movie you've ever seen, and then these assholes are like telling each other jokes, and you're like, I'm not, I can't listen to a joke right now, you right. And, then, and Haneke starts having fun with you, like, oh, there's a thing that they can oh, yeah. rewind time, and I'm like... Uh, you know, uh, all this stuff that should totally take you out of the movie, but that's still the 
a movie that I will never watch again. Well, I went to see the American version uh, mm-hmm. here in Chicago, and there was three people in the theater, and I had seen the original version, and I went with a friend of mine. He hadn't seen it, but there was this guy behind us, and he was not having a good time. And when you got to the scene where he, he shoots the guy, and the guy just gets up on his feet, and he's like, yeah! And I'm thinking, he's not gonna like what happens next. And then <laughs> what happens next, he picks up the remote control, rewinds it, he's not dead anymore. And then the guy's like, no! It just said, like, fuck this movie. Yeah, it was, it was, I'm with that guy. Yeah, it was entertaining for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Fucking Michael Haneke. Uh, okay. At, at, a, at the book party that evening, Matthew and Elizabeth meet up with Jack Belichick, played by Jeff Goldblum, a friend of Matthew's. Matthew tries to phone in and report to the police about the accident, but he meets with strange resistance. Elizabeth becomes entranced by an extremely upset woman who is insisting to Kibner that her husband is an imposter. Kibner calms the woman somewhat before sending her on her way with her husband. Finally, Matthew is able to introduce Elizabeth to Kibner, who admits that over the past few days, other people have been coming to him with the same story that Elizabeth is telling. The patients tell him that someone close to them is acting strange and seems like an imposter. The patients seem to get over it quickly and change their story. Kibner suggests that's a result of the emotional isolation people feel in modern relationships. But even Matthew notices that Kibner doesn't seem to be listening to what Elizabeth is really saying. Matthew takes Elizabeth home and she finds a plant waiting for her. A card indicates it's a gift from Jeffrey. Uh, the book party sequence. I think that's the best. I, uh, it, it, so funny. It's genius casting uh, Leonard Nimoy. Because you never are sure exactly when he becomes a pod person. <laughs> right. You know, he's perfect at it. It's true. And uh, if we, if I get a chance to read this Janet Maslin review, she badmouths Leonard Nimoy's performance. I think she's out of her fucking mind. Out of her I mind. Think, like, it's perfect. Yeah. Most brilliant casting. And so, of course, something I've been wondering about since the very first time I saw this movie is Leonard Nimoy's glove in this movie. Right. And what do you know? I looked it up. And, of course, it's like a Google search. It's like, you know, you type in Leonard Nimoy and pops up Leonard Nimoy's glove. It's like, oh, this is something that uh-huh. people look at all the time. <laughs> Uh, and so, according to Philip Kaufman, the leather glove that Dr. David Kibner wore was deliberately used for the sole purpose of making the character more distinctive and recognizable. And Nimoy got the idea from a friend who wore it uh, to cover a burn on his hand. So That's it? That's, that's the it. story? That's the story. Oh, my God. You're going to edit that one out, right? Well, yeah, probably, but but uh, you know, Kaufman also jokes that it could be the world's first instance instance of carpal tunnel because that's kind of what I thought it must be like some carpal sort of tunnel is new. Thing. Well, seventy eight. Really? So carpal tunnel wasn't around in the fifties? Well, I don't know if it wasn't around, but it wasn't anything that was diagnosed. It's oh. like acid reflux. You know what I mean? Like oh, all yeah, of a sudden, okay. everyone's got acid reflux, I do. but yeah, I don't, yeah. you never heard about that shit. I got you. I got you. <laughs> But this is this to me is Kaufman at his sharpest sort of sociological observation and the introduction of Jeff Goldblum is terrific. When the woman like interrupts him and he goes, "Was was I even talking to you?" Yeah, I I love that. I like when he goes through like a list of authors and he's like, "Where's Jack London?" (laughs) Yeah, because Kazanzakis. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, you know, 
Kaufman's always doing this shit and there's so many mirrors in this movie and they're all kind of distorted but there's this total funhouse mirror in this bookstore somewhere right. that that we see Jeff, Jeff Goldblum through and it's of course it's like well you're looking at yourself in the mirror but what you see isn't really you it isn't exactly you right it's, um, it's a little heavy handed distortion yes but but, but I, I, I feel that. like those kind of mirrors were around all the time in the 70s or like you would see yourself reflected and things that weren't really mirrors, but you could see yourself reflected in them. And you would always kind of, it would have this funhouse effect. That kind of shit was around a lot. So yeah. it was probably just a situation of the set where like, just look at that. Yeah. And I don't think, I think he says that, you know, all of those locations were real locations. Like they're, I don't think they built any sets for this movie. Yeah, it doesn't look except- like it. They sort of built the interior of that warehouse at the end, but even that was an actual warehouse that they just sort of like dressed up. Yeah. Um, Jack returns to his wife, Nancy, Veronica Cartwright, who runs a mud bath facility. Jack is frustrated over not getting a chance to read his poetry at Kibner's book party, and he goes into the baths to relax. Nancy interacts with a strange patron named Mr. Gianni, who has given her a plant just like the one Jeffrey left for Elizabeth. When Nancy begins closing up for the evening, she notices someone lying under a sheet and thinks it's Jack. Removing the sheet, she is startled to find a strange form underneath. It resembles a man, but lacks distinctive features and is covered with white tendrils. Jack, who is sleeping nearby, suddenly appears, and Nancy strikes him accidentally, giving him a nosebleed, and the shape on the table begins to bleed, too. They call Matthew and urge him to come over to examine the phenomenon. When he realizes something terribly strange is happening, he remembers Elizabeth. Unable to reach her by phone, Matthew goes over to her house, and while Jeffrey sits listening to headphones, Matthew breaks into the house and retrieves a sleeping Elizabeth from the house. Before taking her from her bed, Matthew is shocked to see a duplicate of her body lying nearby, covered in the same fibers as the body at the baths. Back at the baths, Jack falls asleep again, and the body begins to take on his features until Nancy wakes him up again. Belichick Mud Baths. That should be like an album title or a band name or something. Yeah, that's uh, that's a that scene reminds me of the uh, spa scenes in uh, Unbearable Lightness of Being. It, it has that sort of that feel, and and that that set also reminds me of the set at the end that you were talking about, where he burns all the pods. Mm-hmm. I actually just saw something a couple hours ago online. Somebody, like, there's like a real San Francisco website, R-E-E-L, where they track down where movies were mm-hmm. shot. And somebody has found the building where that mud baths thing was. And, oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. And it's been a bunch of other things since, but they go inside and they take pictures and they show you. They say, oh, here's where the baths were and here's all this stuff. So, so it was a mud bath place. I don't know that it was a mud bath place. I can't remember what it might have been like a yoga studio or something. Huh. Um, so yeah, I guess they dressed it. I well, maybe it was a mud bath place. I don't know. I'll let you know next time. Um, uh, but you know, right on the heels of the book party scene, this uh, which is like the film's wittiest scene, then this is I would say is the most suspenseful, scary set piece in the movie. Like, I think this is this mud bath thing is just fantastic. Well, I think up until this point, it is. Yeah, what happens? It's the scariest, more most suspenseful. I Um, think it's the best. I think it's the most elaborate set piece in the movie. Like, uh, and and especially because it's cross cutting with Donald Sutherland rescuing her from from the house, and the two of those things combined. I think that's the it's the part of the movie where my 
pulses quicken for the longest amount of time. And it's I'm, definitely the part of the movie where things start to happen. And it's very similar to the scene that happens in the original 56 version. Like mm-hmm. all the characters are there. They're, some of the dialogue is exactly the same. It's interesting, though, that that the point that this happens in this version is about 40 minutes in, whereas the Siegel version is about 20 minutes in. Uh, but yeah. this is the point when the movie starts to take a turn and it's like something really is happening. Um, whereas where at the uh, Nicole Kidman version, I think it happens five minutes in. It's something fucking ridiculous. I couldn't bring myself to watch it. You watched it again. I watched huh? it. I watched it. And uh, I've got a few things to say about it when, when we get okay. when we get there. But sure. But yeah, no, it, it, it's not good. I, I, I really dig the cross-cutting between the mud baths and Elizabeth's house. And then I also love the... Uh, here's another sound design element. This is a great use of that phone off the hook noise. Uh, which is playing because right. Jeffrey is taking their phone off the hook. And so while Donald Sutherland is trying to sneak around, there's this that, 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 that thing going the whole time. It's great. I love the fact that her body is out on that, that veranda. Is is that what you would call it? Like outside? It's of like the- a greenhouse, I guess, right? It's, it's like an I, indoor. I, I yeah. never, when I saw the movie, when I first saw the movie, I'd never seen anything like that. You know, right. I, I'd never been to a house that had a window and then like a place outside of that. So like yeah. every time I go to a house that does have something like that, the first thing I think of is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's funny. Matthew and Elizabeth return to the baths and summon Kibner, but the body is apparently vanished. Likewise, Matthew reports Elizabeth's other body to the police, but when they return to the house she shares with Jeffrey, nobody's able to find that body. Kibner quiets the police, and Jeffrey seems unconcerned that his girlfriend refuses to come home and is spending the night with Matthew. Converging at Matthew's house, the small group forms their hypothesis. Somehow people are being duplicated, and these alternate bodies are appearing to take their places. Kibner is skeptical, tries to talk them out of their ideas, but finally leaves. Unseen by the others, he gets into a car with two other conspirators, including Jeffrey. Seems a little risky to, to drive over there with those guys, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I think they don't give a fuck these pod people. They're like we we know we're we know we're gonna win. So well, they, it's, their plan is foolproof. Everyone's got to fall asleep. There's no way you can win. I, I've always been curious about uh, some of the rules about this pod transference. Like, how close do you have to be to a pod for it to happen? It seems like you have to be within the vicinity. Right. If you could get somewhere where you knew there were no pods, you should be you should be able to have a good night's sleep. Right. Right. And it also seems like you can be woken up out of your slumber at any time in the process and still be saved. Like, it seems like up until the last moment, it seems like these people. Yeah. When it finally happens to. To Maud. God damn, I keep forgetting your name. Brooke Adams. Brooke Adams. I keep wanting to say Maud Adams. When it finally happens to Brooke Adams, it seems like. She might have been dead for a while, right? Yeah. Well, she crumples up in his arms. Yeah. It seems like they're saying from time to time that these bodies, that these new pods get birthed naked, which I guess makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense that they'd have clothes coming out of those pods too. But but by and large, these pod bodies get dressed pretty quickly. You know, Brooke Adams is the only one who, who does the, what's right. the name of that movie? Life Force. Yeah, she's the only one who does the life force routine in this, right. in this thing. Or the species routine. Right. Uh, and, and in the 56 version, do we see any naked or pieces of naked 
pod. Yeah. Couple. Yeah. When he takes the, the, the pitchfork to his own body, uh, Kevin McCarthy, you can see that he doesn't have any clothes on. And there's sort of like that, that soap foamy type of thing happening, which is right. pretty effective. Uh, but you see that, uh, yeah, that scene where he, even that is pretty scary and, and pretty rough for a movie from the 50s. I, don't- I agree. So if I, I, I tend to think of <clears throat> uh, Invasion of the Body Snatcher 78 and The Thing, the Carpenter Thing, which is 82. Two, yeah. Like those to me are these definitive, ver- those are the movies that I was the right age to think of as like the greatest things I've ever seen and um, the definitive versions of those movies. But I know that the directors of those movies felt that way about the originals. Right. And and because they were my age when they saw those originals. And I think that out of the two uh, 50s versions of those stories, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is the better of those two 50s movies. Yeah. Yeah. Although the thing is 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 pretty good too, but I think you're right. I think Invasion of the Body Snatchers 56 is genuinely scary and suspenseful where I w- have never been able to see what people were so scared about in the 50s version of the thing. Well, it's got a great jump scare. It's one of the best jump scares of all time when yes, you're going it does. that door mm-hmm. and 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 is it James Arness who, who's playing the thing? Yep. And he's there and it's terrific and and I can see that people would have jumped out of their seats and that would have been a reason to talk about the movie alone, but but I I didn't have a relationship with that movie the way that I had a relationship with Body Snatchers. I had never seen it. I don't think I'd ever seen the thing, other than clips of it in Halloween, before I saw mm-hmm. Carpenter's The Thing. So I, while I totally agree with you about the thing i don't know i mean i sometimes i i don't know if this is better than the original version and honestly sometimes i don't know if this is better than the 93 version i think every version has something to offer and and these movies are part of the reason why i'm not so against remakes i think you can make great remakes and and in this case you can do it over and over again well not over and over again but at least over again all right. Well, I was going to ask you this question at some point, though. I, I hear what you're. I hear what you're saying about all of that, and I kind of agree with you. But on the other hand, what was the last? Forget great. What was the last good remake you you saw? What do you, What do you think the last good remake that's been made has been? Uh Little Women. Okay. Little Women was great. Uh, it was my favorite movie of the year. It was absolutely terrific. Yeah. Fair enough. I, I didn't think I was going to have an answer for you, but <laughs> boy, howdy, yeah, did I ever. I almost feel like that's cheating, but okay. Um, <laughs> it might be. But but yeah. had had there been a had there been a version of Little Women before this one that you had any real affinity for, or that no? I mean, maybe the Hepburn, Hepburn, the Catherine Hepburn one, uh, I liked, but the Winona Ryder one, I yeah, no, you're right in that sense, but. You know, yeah, it counts because it's also because the thing is based on a book, not not the thing. What are we talking about? Body Snatchers is based on a book. Man, yeah. it's it's been a long it's been a long month. But no here's drinking. the, I mean, but you're, I mean, I get you know, it's fine. Little Women, that's a fine answer. I I would argue that may, that that like none of the previous versions of Little Women 
were considered were the movie versions were not considered like this classic. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe the Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, I don't have a lot of affection for the Winona Ryder one, but a lot of my a lot of people do, and some of them used to be my friends. Uh, so yeah. I mean, a lot of people really think that movie is terrific. Um, but kids who grew up at the right time think that same thing about the Sandlot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah. So, <laughs> uh, or Mighty Ducks, probably. Well, uh, but any, but, but yeah. before that, I, I I don't know. But but as far as remakes go, that that I do think are worth a shit are the ones you mentioned, like The Thing, this one, The Fly. Uh, it, it it can be done. Um, I, and I took a, I, I attended a class at the film center downtown a few years ago. And the lecturer there was talking about how, you know, even sequels are remakes. And, you know, like I, I, I kind of don't have that hatred of remakes that I used to have. And it's because of these movies and it's because of that class and sort of seeing what, how, it, like remakes are nothing new, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, 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 you know, like The Age of Innocence is a remake. And, and I didn't know that until a month ago. You, you, you never know what you're watching that, that's been done before. Or a French movie or, you know. Yes. That, okay. That, that's, that's fair enough. I do think that there's like different categories. Yeah. I think that there's... Good ones and bad ones. <laughs> yeah. But I mean... But but there's one thing where it's like they're all they're all coming from this source material that's something else and and maybe no one has said oh there's this definitive classic film but I do think that that the thing and Invasion of the Body Snatchers fall into this other category where you're making a remake of a film specific, even if it even if the original source material is something else the thing that people know the most is this earlier film and you're right. gonna you're gonna show that you've got something to you're gonna be like that fucking moron brett ratner remaking manhunter as red dragon yeah uh, because he wants to do i, I don't know I, I don't get me started on that yeah uh but well. <laughs> <laughs> uh but the last but i'm gonna throw a dark horse candidate in here for the last let's say genre film based on another genre film that's also like a classic film that I think is probably an underrated and I think is pretty fucking good as a remake. And that's the Tom Savini version of Night of the Living Dead, which I think was 1990. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I'm, I really like that Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead. Oh, okay. I think it's, you know, beyond it, saying that it's better than it had any right to be i actually think it's really really good uh, i would have to watch that savini i was really hard on the savini version when it came out um hmm. so i should probably see i think i went in there expecting to hate it and the fact that i didn't was like oh okay and i liked the idea of of uh um turning it into uh Barbara's story and that she's the yep. protagonist who makes it through at the end. I thought, okay, if they if they want to remake this movie every 20 or 30 years but come up with the new sort of social significance of the main character and what Like with they Invasion of the, the Body Snatchers, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Speaking of, uh, <laughs> uh, 
So I think that this is probably the halfway point of the movie, and this is where the impending doom starts to set in. Uh, But all day, Matthew tries to get others to listen to him about what's going on. He makes phone calls, has meetings, tries to find anybody who'll take him seriously. Similarly, the woman who was so upset at the bookstore now turns up at the health department and tells Elizabeth that she's all right now. Uh, What's her name? Lilia Galdoni? Yeah. She was in Faces. She was uh, in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. I was like watching yes. her. And I was like, who is that? I know who that is. And and he, and he Kaufman cast her specifically because of Faces. That was one of his favorite movies. And That's- actually seeing Cassavetti's movies uh, was what brought him back to America after living in Europe for a while. That's probably why Scorsese cast her in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Yeah, probably. Because it brought Kaufman back to America after he hadn't been there in in a while yeah every time i see a payphone in a movie i get reminded of things that used to be a part of my everyday life and then suddenly were not and like don't exist anymore so like payphones rotary dial phones um yeah turn turntables which i recently like unearthed one from the basement and brought back up are you a guy who's like been playing vinyl records this whole time this whole time yeah yeah the uh, yeah. Like you never stopped. Never really you never stopped, went no. CD and. No, I, I did go CD, but uh, I'm not one of those guys who threw out all their records. Uh, no, I didn't throw out any records. I just stopped playing them. I just like replaced them with CD and then streaming or whatever the fuck we do now. Uh, no, I I I did after what for a while have a really shitty turntable during the CD thing, and I never uh, got a better one. And then then I did eventually get a better one. So. Now, I barely listen to music unless I'm playing it on a, on a record player. Huh. Yeah. And so do you get, do you buy, when you buy new albums, you buy them on vinyl? Um, rarely. Rarely. Uh, only if I really like a band, but it's usually something that I've listened to over and over, and it's like, oh, let's get that for vinyl. So that's probably a bad idea to, for if you want to listen to new music. I'm not doing very good in that no, regard. It's, it's, well, that's all right, but I mean, it's like it's so expensive now. Those it's crazy. Records are insane. It's yeah. fucking insane. Like they've got, they've really, they've gotten their revenge. It's like, oh, you don't want us anymore. Oh, now you do. Right. You're gonna pay this much. It, it's kind of sweet. And, and we're gonna sound like shit because like we don't know how to do it anymore. So we're gonna <laughs> punch the hole in the wrong spot, and we're gonna, <laughs> you know, the mastering's gonna be all fucked. Um, they're a lot thicker now. Yes. Yeah. If and everything is important and, to you. Right. And every is <laughs> girth. Yeah. And then um but and then every album is now like a double album because they're mm-hmm. like, oh, you can only put like two songs on a side and Yeah, so you can run uh, forty five. Yeah. Careful, you're yeah. cutting deep over here. <laughs> yeah. Uh hey, uh that I there was this other question I had to ask you about technology and stuff. When you started touring with local H, was that pre GPS and yeah. smartphones. Yeah. You, so you, you have ha- how maps. many years of touring did you do? Yeah. Before you, before, and, and hasn't that totally changed your life? Totally changed it completely. And as far as like what we we're talking about eating, you know, it used to be, Oh, people would tell you there's a restaurant down the street. And it's like, now it's like, I, I don't fuck you. I don't need you. I know that restaurant's <laughs> down the street and I know there's, yeah. there's something over there that I'd rather have. I'm not going to your barbecue place. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's changed everything. 
yeah, when I when I was doing that shit as road manager, like the our whole lives were like, wait, we're on the wrong highway. Oh yeah. no, fuck, we're driving yeah. the wrong direction. Uh, wait, oh, we we hit the city limits. Somebody's got to get out of the van and make a call to the club to to get directions from this gas station to the club and right. Yeah. Damn. Now you just text. We're gonna be a little late. Cool. We'll be here. We're here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Know? As far as hotels go, it's like where are we gonna stay tonight? All right, let's look something up. Oh, this is close and it's cheap. Let's go. It's completely changed everything. It's it's one of the things that I can point to and say this. I have no qualms about technology in this. There's no downside, as far as I'm concerned, to technology. Right. Inside. There's nothing you miss about pre GPS days. No. No, I I, th- I think it's I I, I applaud it and it, and I and I appreciate it in every way. Well, I would I would dig a supercut of every time somebody's on a payphone in a movie and then someone else is harassing them to stop hogging the phone or vice versa. Uh, like there's that modern romance uh, stuff with Albert Brooks and that old guy on the yeah. payphone. But there's a like just like there's so many movies where it revolves around like an argument about who's going to get to use this payphone. Right. I just saw Bedroom Window and the, the, the whole plan falls apart because Steve Gutenberg can't use the goddamn payphone. I mean, every time I see a phone booth, though, it just reminds me of Rosemary's Baby. And yeah, th- that whole sequence in this movie reminds me of Rosemary's Baby. A- absolutely. Totally. Totally. Uh, that night, the Belichick stay at Matthews. Kibner gives Elizabeth a mild sedative to help her sleep and then leaves. The entire group falls asleep except for Nancy. As they sleep, four pods in Matthew's garden release white tendrils that attach to the sleeping people, and they soon burst forth with embryonic life, somehow duplicating their victims. Before the transformation is complete, Nancy revives Matthew. Together they wake the others, and Matthew tries to call for help. The telephone operators already know who he is, addressing him by name. The power goes out. They see a horde of people rushing up the hill to Matthew's house. As the others escape out the back, Matthew leaves the yard, smashing in the head of his own duplicate with a hoe. Ugh, brutal. This made me think of a of a different, even creepier version of this movie that I'd like to see someday. Where at this point in the movie, and this is if they can, the next time they make the remake, they can do this. Um, at this point in the movie, it would be cool, I think, if none of these people woke up, and that we spent the second half of the movie just following the pod versions of them around just to see what happens. Because that's the thing; <laughs> you never really get to see what the what life's going to be like, uh, you know, in any real way in these movies post pod or you know well, during the pod invasion the 2007 or, one gets into it a little bit and that there's it brings about world peace that that's that's the twist part about the ah. kidman version is that it's actually better for the world uh and that's it, how that one ends no it ends that uh her son is is uh immune so she uses her her son's antibodies uh, Jeffrey Wright figures out how to make a, uh, a uh, why can't I think of this? Because we're all talking. Vaccine. A vaccine. And and uh, everybody just goes back to normal. And as they go back to normal, war starts up again. Um, so, so you know, that's that's the, that's the thing so that's to think the about unhappy with that ending. movie. That's that movie's hook. <laughs> huh. Well, that's interesting. Huh. There's actually, uh, I think it's, somebody talks about, the director of that of that version, and one of the reasons it's such a fucking mess is 
the director, uh, he had done Downfall, I think, the German movie about Hitler. I think, uh, oh. you know, that one German movie about Hitler. As is that, wait, is that, that the German one where that they use Hitler? all the time in those memes where yeah. it's Hitler yelling? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he got kicked off the movie. They brought in the Wachowski siblings to rewrite it. And oh. Then, and then they brought in uh, some favorite director of theirs, James McTeague. And then they started to shoot it as a as an action movie. So the movie had been done for about a year, and they brought everybody back to do like three more weeks of reshoots, which is a reason why its defenders say it's a mess, and you got to look past that. But but what makes it really well, when interesting, you look past it, what are you supposed to see when you look past that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I I guess that idea that we were just talking about that the idea is sort of this clockwork orange idea mm. that that. What makes us human is what, what makes us bad for each other. Uh, right. Which I get. It's interesting. But th- it's not like that point isn't in all the other fucking versions of this movie. It's not, it's not new. But what's, what is new and what is fun is that the director of the movie, who was originally there, his first name is Ben. And then the character of Nicole Kidman's, the name of Nicole Kidman's son is Ben. So throughout the entire movie, you can sort of like see it because they keep looking for Ben and all the characters are, where's Ben? I've got to find Ben. Has anyone talked to Ben? Why are we doing this? Where's Ben? So you can see it as all the actors are calling out for the director to wonder why, what's going on with these reshoots. So I guess you could look past it for that reason. It's not a good reason, but it is a reason. I didn't, you know, I didn't realize the Wachowskis had something to do with that movie. So are they the credited screenwriters? No, I think everybody's oh. uncredited. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's, uh, that's, there's no reason why you should know any of that. And there's no reason why I would know any of that if I hadn't just watched it. I wasn't going yeah. to. And then I said, ah, fuck it. Let's do it. I'm trying to think what it was that made me go see it in a movie theater. Because I should have known better by then. But I did. Because it... Uh, because so far, this had been the most consistent right. series right. of films remade. Like, right. I love that Abel Ferrara version. Okay, well, let me say, I didn't. I When I saw it, I saw that in a theater. And that's another reason why I can't figure out why I saw The Invasion. Is because I didn't like the Abel Ferrara movie when I saw it uh, in a theater. And I didn't revisit it for a long, long time. Then I did last year... And I thought, oh, no, this is good. And then I watched it again this week. I was like, no, this is really fucking good. Yeah. I've yeah. been a fan of that movie since it came up. I mean, I really like it. And and I I was of this mind that here was this premise that they can't seem to fuck up. And right. so when I heard there was, there was a new version, I was excited. I think I was the only one who was excited. Uh, and I, then I was the only one who was disappointed. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, I was still disappointed. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the, the Ferrara version is interesting to me, well, for all kinds of reasons. And I'm trying to, I feel like the reason I didn't like it, I don't know. It just wasn't the idea of moving it all to this army base just seemed like, okay, this is, this is not the update that I was hoping for that, that, you know, that, that it, that it, it really is much more of a return to the sort of the size and scale and scope of the original. Like, right. it's like, okay, we're not doing this big city thing. We're doing something the equivalent of a small town. And we're and, and we're really doing this whole military thing because that's our angle on it. And right. I just didn't, that just didn't click with me for a long time. 
Um, but I do love that. But but I love it now. But it adds to the paranoia that we were talking about, like with with Leonard Nimoy, where where because you're in an army base, you can't tell who's doing. Right. You know who is actually turned because it's all about right. conformity anyway. So right. you know it, it does yeah. seem like it's it's a little too easy to set it set it there, but it, it does work. Well, it 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 dawned on me watching it this week how influential it is for like twenty eight days later. Like it seems like that movie that Danny Boyle saw this and was like, oh, "Okay, cool. We can we could we should do all this stuff with military types and oh, and yeah, also second half, yeah, yeah." And and there's also there's there's also something more fast moving about these pod people in the Ferrara version. There's a couple times where they're really running, yeah. and I guess they do that a little bit in the Kaufman version, yeah. but. You don't really get that sense of like imminent physical danger. Like this is the only one. This is the only. I don't remember. I don't know about the invasion, but the Ferrari is the only one where there seems like there's some physical threat from these pod people. In those earlier versions, it's all sort of like you're gonna fall asleep and then you're gonna be one of us. But we're not really gonna attack you in any way. The closest they get to it, I guess, is when Kibner like shoots them with the tranquilizer. Right. Nobody really gets killed. Right. And nobody even gets beat up. Yeah. You know, there is no there is no threat of violence. They're all just sort of you know, they're which makes sense in that they're losing all their emotions and their feelings and so there's no reason to fight. Like, right. Whatever. I mean go on your merry way. It, it, the Ferrara version deserves to ex- to exist for no other reason if for no other other reason than the Meg Tilly scene where she where he's her that, husband is her freaking lines, out, and she's like, yeah. "Hold on, you know this is important. Listen, where go? Where you know? Are you listening to me?" And she keeps trying to calm him down, like, "Listen to me. Where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna run? Where are you gonna hide? Nowhere, because there's no one like you left. It's terrifying." And it and it they they even use it again at the very end. They like play yeah. it again. Yeah, they slow it down, which is a little unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but even you know even they know even Ferrara knows that that is. The, the climax of the film and the high point. He's got to stick it in there one one last time for you. Here's one thing I want to say in, uh, that I love about Philip Kaufman, especially after watching all these movies this week, is that he resists the urge in very obvious uh, places where you think, yeah, yeah, this is the time to go for it. He doesn't shoot in uh, scope. He doesn't have that two three five two three nine right. aspect ratio where where Ferrara does. For whatever reason, because I think everyone does now, you know. Well, oh, but but the Ferrara version re- is, is earlier. Than it that. really works. It's become ridiculous. His compositions yeah. really work. Yeah, but even in the right stuff, Philip Kaufman isn't shooting in scope, which just seems amazing to me. It seems like a gimme. Uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I give him props for that, just because I'm so burnt out on that on everyone using scope ratio now yeah like, like the dumbest little domestic dramas are all in scope and i'm like what are we doing like what the fuck vince vaughn comedies have to be in scope right what's going yeah, on it's, i don't know it's so obnoxious and it's like okay as soon as everyone got tvs that are this size we're gonna make sure that all our movies are now this size so you're still fucked right we're watching <laughs> that uh uh that brian cranston series that's on showtime right now uh-huh and it's in scope uh, it's a tv show that is never going to play theatrically, and it's in two, three, five. Why? What? It drives me up the fucking wall, and I yeah. can't believe oh, I'm still watching of, the there's show. There's plenty of fucking Netflix and Amazon shit that does that. 
It's crazy. I mean, if it's a movie, I understand it's possible. It's possible that it's going to play in a theater. It's not likely, but it's possible. And if it does, I'm sure you'd love to see it in widescreen. But this is not going to play in a theater. It's a TV show, and I'm offended that they're doing this. (sighs) Where are we? (laughs) We're done. We are kind of almost done. We are uh, at the point where... Yeah. They're running. We're running. We're running. Uh, they're running. They get in a cab. Don Siegel's the oh, cab driver. He has the great line about type H, repeat type H. Great, <laughs> great. You know, having Don Siegel in there is terrific. But also just the idea that trying to spot who the pod person is and you can't figure out if the cab driver is a pod guy or not. Because, like, if you were walking down the street and somebody came up to you and started asking all these questions where you're going, right away, you know it's a pod guy. But if you're in a cab, that's what they do. They never shut up. They ask you questions that they shouldn't be asking. I love that scene. So, you know, then it's sort of all endgame here. Uh, They take refuge in the dark offices of the health department, but Kibner and Jack find them. They're pod people. Uh... Matthew and Elizabeth managed to overpower both of them because they've taken some speed shortly right. before they arrive. Uh, they kill Jack, uh, which is like a little mini torn curtain sequence, kind of. Yeah. Uh, and then they lock Kibner in a freezer, which is nice. Um, <laughs> and I do love that Sutherland saying to Nimoy, David, you're killing me, like in a sort of a, just a very straightforward way. That's, that's chilling. Yeah. Uh, out of the way, on the way out of the building, they bump back into Nancy, aka Veronica Cartwright. She's still human. She wants to know about Jack, but Sutherland doesn't want to tell her that he's just been killed by Jack by by Sutherland. Um, Nancy never goes to sleep. She's amazing. Yeah, she's the best. Um, then they leave the health department and try to play like they're pod people but elizabeth is startled by the sight of the banjo players dog pod which has the head of the banjo player banjo played by jerry garcia thank you i was gonna i was trying to figure out where we were gonna mention that that's something i never knew before this week did you know that already no idea but the san francisco thing at all it all makes sense yeah um and phil kaufman says he's just he didn't know jerry garcia i mean knew who he was but it was just some somebody who worked on the production was friends with Jerry, and they were working on the sound. And she just said, "Hey, Jerry, can you play some banjo for us?" And he's like, "Sure." The one thing I didn't remember is as soon as they show the man-faced dog, the the banjo comes playing again, and I find that really unfortunate. Yeah, I didn't even notice that, but that is unfortunate. Yeah, it should at least be playing like the Deliverance theme if they're going. It kind of is it. playing the Deliverance theme. It's just like comes in. <laughs> It's like, is this a satire of the scene? Are you a are you a Jerry Garcia dead fan? No, at all. No, me either. No, no, and, and you know, I've had my phases of bands that I thought I would never like. Like you know, I used to hate Steely Dan, and I love Steely Dan now. So I kept thinking that one of these days I'm going to have a change of heart about the dead, and I don't think it's going to happen. And I'm fine with I that. Don't, yeah. I even watched that whole long, strange trip thing, and I I find them fascinating just sort of as their story. I think they seem like Jerry Garcia seems like a nice, interesting guy, mm-hmm. uh, but their music, I'm baffled. Yeah, I don't get it. Making their way to the docks, Matthew and Elizabeth 
discover a greenhouse where thousands of pods are being cultivated. Elizabeth, hindered by a twisted ankle and lack of sleep, feels as if she can't go on much further without sleep. Matthew goes to investigate the sounds of Amazing Grace coming from one of the ships, leaving Elizabeth hiding among some tall grass. Matthew is horrified to see huge pallets of pods being loaded onto the ships. The spiritual is simply a random radio broadcast as the station is changed, a ship helmed by pod people ready to take the alien presence to other areas of the world. Well, you know, the Amazing Grace thing, I remember as a kid thinking was like awesome and like was like just the best. And right. Watching it now, I'm sort of like, oh, man, this is so overdone. But at the same time, it really is just being faithful to at least the 56 version where the same thing happens. I mean, it is an amazing grace, but it's some kind of spiritual music that um, Kevin McCarthy hears and, right. uh, and, and wanders out. It, you're, you're left to think it's going to be okay, and, and then it's not. I bet it's something that works in the novel in a way that it doesn't work quite as well in any of the film versions. And I, I guess that that scene doesn't happen in the last two remakes, does it? No. Um, but I could see how I could see how a description of that scene written by Jack Finney would be somehow not translate as well to the screen. There's something about uh, it's definitely the 56 version where I'm like, I don't really even understand what why he's so drawn to this why he needs to go listen find out what the, where the sound of this is coming from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matthew returns to Elizabeth. He finds her asleep. He's unable to wake her. As he holds her in his arms, Elizabeth body, Elizabeth's body crumbles into a husk. Her nude clone appears in the grass. Matthew runs, slipping into the greenhouse facility. He makes his way to the steep scaffolding, and after taking a fire axe, begins wrecking, wreaking havoc among the pods, dropping electrical lighting rigs onto them until the entire place is in flames. The unborn pods are burned. But the fire alarm is sounded. The pod people pursue him, including a newly converted Elizabeth. Matthew slips away from them, hiding under a dock. He hears them talking amongst themselves, and one of them says he can't get far. He has to sleep sometime. Matthew knows that they are right. The next day, Matthew goes through the motions of his job, staring blankly at his co-workers. He sees Elizabeth in the hallways of the building, but they do not acknowledge one another. Outside, Matthew sees school buses of children from Santa Barbara L.A. and other areas of California being taken to a theater for their conversion. <laughs> a while later, Matthew is walking along a deserted street towards the city hall building and hears a voice calling to him. Turning around, he sees the still human Nancy across the street. As she crosses the street to meet him, Matthew's face twists into a grimace and he points at her, screaming an alien scream to alert the other pod clones to her presence. Nancy screams, realizing too late that Matthew is now a pod person. As the camera zooms into his mouth and the screen fades to black. Brilliant. I mean, the the one thing that this movie towers above all the other versions is the ending. You know, I mean, you can't argue that. That this is, not only is it the best ending of the series of movies, if you can call it that a series, but it's the best ending. It's one of the best endings ever. I mean, it's great. Yeah, and I would say that uh, Donald Sutherland is is crucial uh, to two of the best endings of movies, this one and for me, Don't Look Now is I saw that when I was like 11 years old in the movie theater too. <laughs> and I was, I'm still recuperating from the last minute of Don't Look Now. You know all the stuff about Don't Look Now and and the creepiness of it. I, I feel like he does it all here. I mean, you know, I saw Don't Look Now for the first time last year, uh-huh. and uh, that might have been what started my whole 
Sutherland thing, but mm-hmm. but I think it's fine. You know, I just yeah, I, I feel like no, I get it. I've shown it to people in the last twenty years of my life, brought them into movie theater, like screened it for them in theaters, had shown it at UW Cinematheque, and people who haven't. People who are seeing it for the first time usually are like, well, what's the matter with you? And and especially they hate the ending and they're like, what kind of fucking stupidity is this? But, and I, you know, and I get that. But for me, seeing it, I, I saw it as a, I think my friend Stephen and I saw it as a double feature at a revival house in the village in like the late 70s or early 80s with Rosemary's Baby. And we oh. were there to see Rosemary's Baby and we weren't even going to stay for Don't Look Now, but for some reason we did. And it just was like a life-changing experience. I mean, I feel bad that I don't totally fucking love it. I mean, I do. And I, and I, I will, I I can see myself giving it another shot, but, but, uh, yeah, I, I was slightly disappointed and I, I, I'm willing to take responsibility for that. No, you don't have to, but maybe we should should. talk about it. We should talk about it on the podcast one day and then that'll get you to watch it again. Yeah, yeah. But this this ending and the, and the way there's no music over the end credits where you just have to sit. It. The kid just has to sit in it. I mean, if I had been there and just had to go through that terrifying ending and sit there in silence looking at all these names, doing jobs that I don't care about, I, I don't know what that would have done to me. So wait, am I understanding you correctly in say, you're saying that for your money, <laughs> so to speak... This is the best ending of any movie ever? Uh, it's, it might be the best horror ending. Uh, it, it's definitely one of the great endings, uh, I, I would go, say. Right. I mean, and we talked about seriously. Don't Look Now, and you're not, a, you're not a Don't Look Now acolyte like I am. What about Halloween? What about the end of Halloween? I was just thinking, now, Halloween is a great, perfect ending, but... As far as shock endings go, this kind of like the thing about Halloween is is there's that you can hear that oh, the breathing and everything and it goes you know it's 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 a genius ending and the disappearing is great but this is just uh, I I can't I mean I you think of the ending of Shivers there's a certain thing you know a lot of movies do this kind of thing this kind of ending and that's probably one of the reasons why we love seventies movies but but this is. This is right up there. I mean, right? I think this is about as heavy of a downer ending uh, as could possibly be. Yeah, I, I think I. But I think it's. I think it's devastating, but also perfect in a way that you can't even be that bummed out about it because it's so. Uh, right. Perfect. It's so good. Yeah, it's so good. You're psyched about it. You're like, hell yeah, that was a great way to end the movie. Yeah. There's something that happens at the very end. Well, not the very end. I guess it's not the very last moment of Funny Games, which we were talking about before. But they're on the boat, and they do what they do on the boat. And that Mm -hmm. also is just like, that gives me nightmares just to even think about it. (laughs) Oh, well, that's Um, an absolute bummer of a of a of a ending there's nothing kick-ass about that ending you know no. right Hanukkah uh, is only, trying to be as right. unkick-ass as possible right the as far as clever like clever endings 
which are not the same as like sort of this shock, surprise, or just whatever, however you describe the ending of um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Though, um, I was, you know, I mean, Carpenter, in addition to Halloween, I, for a while I was like, I'm going to stick around to the end of this Carpenter movie because I know if nothing else is good about it, it's going to have a great ending. Right. He, he always used to have like these great sort of little clever yeah. twist endings, like uh, even Escape from New York, which I think is not, you know, it's it's good. I loved it at the time. Oh, oh, oh. Um, great ending. Great ending. Right. Exactly. Fantastic ending. Even and Prince of actually, Darkness. Even has Prince a great of Darkness, ending. which I think is a total piece of shit. I love the ending of that movie. Yeah. Well, great ending and a great beginning. Probably the longest credit sequence I, I can I can think of, think of yeah. off the top of my head. But the other the other favorite like last minute or last couple seconds of a movie that I always thought was oh my god this couldn't be any better and just it's the kind of thing you would just talk about all the time. It was taking a Pelham one two three. Great movie, and that yeah. ending is. I would never have thought that that's how that movie would have ended, ever. That, that, that's terrific. Yeah, the thing about taking Pelham 1, 2, 3 is I never real, realized how entertaining it was going to be. I mean, I'd held off on seeing it for years because I thought it was... There's that other movie about taking over a train with Martin Sheen in it, I think. I can't remember the name of it. Someone else would probably know, but... Oh, oh, The Incident. Yeah, so for Larry years, Pierce. Yeah, for years I thought Pelham One Two Three was the incident, and I was like, I don't want to watch that. That's a fucking bummer. And then I finally saw Pelham One Two Three in a theater at the Music Box for the first time, sold out, packed crowd, and it was the best time I had in movie for years. I mean, it was like I couldn't believe how entertaining it was. Yeah. But as far as sequels go. Or, I mean, as far as remakes go, I, this movie, this series, I think is is, is up there with on the top. I, I, I love all of these movies except for the fourth one. Um, but you think this is the best one? I definitely do. I, I do. But, I've, but I've always liked the Don Siegel one, and I've come to appreciate the Abel Ferrara. I don't have anything really bad to say about any of them. I, I guess that the Abel Ferrara one feels, if, if I have any complaints about it, is it just feels like it's a little, of of its moment filmmaking-wise, it's a little uh, like showy and flashy. In that, what year was it made? 97? 93. Oh, 93. 93. Yeah. It feels very 1993. Not that I remembered which year it was from, but it feels like, I, I don't know. You know, maybe there's one too many Dutch angles in it. And although I love how hallucinatory and sort of surreal it feels right from the get go. Yeah. And I love, and I like the I like all the things that he brings back into it. Or, you know, whoever wrote it, well, his longtime screenwriting partner, Nicholas St. John had something to do with it, but so did Larry Cohen. And so did Stuart Gordon, which right. I think is so cool. It's so cool that the two of those guys are somehow involved in this. Yeah. Um, but I like that he brings back the film noir, like um, narrative, like voiceover narration at the beginning of it. Right. Uh, and that it's from this perspective of this teenage girl, which I think is cool. Right. Well, as far as the Dutch angles go, though, like there's that noir Dutch angle thing in, in all three of these versions that we're talking about. 
And I mean, that's the thing that, you know, the, the genre that the movies would belong to would be sci-fi and then second would be horror. And I think a strong third is film noir. I think there's a noirish element to all of these movies. And even in, in the 78 version, like there's that scene, it's almost like a, a, a satire, a noir satire where they're being chased and it's just a shot of their feet and they're walking on, along yeah. the street. Yeah, yeah. And then they see feet coming towards them and then they pass and then you see a bunch of feet and then they start, it's almost like a Mel Brooks movie. Yeah, uh, that's true. That one sequence is definitely that. But I, but and certainly the '56 version, and and especially with the, with the with the beginning and the ending that I guess was created after. On. Yeah, yeah, tacked on. Which I think is, as far as tacked on endings and beginnings go, is pretty good. I I don't mind it. I I kind of. Yeah, but it ruins that ending. Like, if if they had had the. If it had ended the way it was supposed to, with him yelling at everybody, they're here, they're already here, yelling at the audience, that would have been a pretty great ending. And it would, and the 78's ending wouldn't have been head and shoulders the best ending. That would have been a pretty great ending. Here's a movie that somehow hasn't gotten remade yet. Uh, Blade Runner. Um, you like it with or without the voiceover narration? Um, I... You know, I used to not really mind the voiceover, but the last time I watched it, it, it really did bother me. Hmm. Last thing I, I do want to say about this movie and, and and try to figure out why it's so resonant is something that it, beyond, you know, the social political stuff that everybody, you know, the primal pull of the story. I mean, there's something about it that has nothing to do with anything. It's just the death, like, you know, like even if you're a Christian and you believe in heaven and all that kind of stuff, you're still not going to be you when you go to sleep for that last time. And if you were to wake up in the afterworld, you wouldn't have any judgments of people and, you know, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel anything towards your wife or your parents or, you know, that kind of thing. You'd kind of be a pod person, even if you were in heaven, right? And and there's something like really primal about that whole thing that like, no matter what, when you're, when you're dead, that part of you, obviously, is dead too, right? I mean, the, even if you believe in an afterlife, I mean, who are you, you know? I, I, it's, I, yeah, it really uh, connects with me. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, and there's this, there's the whole like, what makes you, you and i think that most people spend their lives um being told by other people that there are certain aspects of their personality that they should, they should tone down or learn how to how to, mm-hmm. how to not be so emotional and control your anger and all that stuff and um yeah and i think that all these movies sort of speak to that too like at what point at what point are you are you taming yourself so much that you are no longer yourself and you're just sort of this cog in the machinery of society? I guess I do understand why this, why the 56 version got tagged as maybe like an anti-communist screed. And yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, you know, this was came out around the same time as, uh, well, the original comes out around the same time as, 
uh, incredible shrinking man. And, you know, there's a definite, like, a lot of thinking man type of thing going on with both of those movies. Um, and uh, that's my favorite kind of science fiction. You know, it's not science fiction. It's about, like, the futuristic stuff. Even that is about what's happening now. It's not about what's happening in the future. And it's, yeah, you know, philosophical questions, blah, 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 blah. It's a good one. I do think it's interesting that that in the Kaufman version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, some of the political, the mo- more overt political connotations, I don't feel as much. But mm-hmm. watching the rest of his films, I'm like, oh, man, it's it's he's reexamining those themes in all these movies. Unbearable lightness of being and the whole thing with Prague and communists and... Yep. Being forced to renounce right. your 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 thoughts about the uh, current political system—that's uh, totally invasion of the body snatchers territory all over again in that movie. Yeah. And and there's even some of that in the right stuff where the astronauts are being asked to sort of present themselves one way to the public, even though we keep seeing uh, another side of them that they have to sort of keep hit, hidden. Uh, right, right. And I mean, he was a he was a hippie uh, during the '60s in San Francisco. So, like, when you get that shot of the flower coming out of the pod, and then this head comes through it, it's like you know this idea that the flower people have been, you know, be, have become these weird fleshy. I don't know couch potatoes or something you know it, it's it he he doesn't hit it too hard but but it's it's there you know which uh which yeah gives certainly gives it something that the fourth one didn't have and maybe the third one doesn't have either and maybe the first one doesn't have yeah well the 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 third one the abel ferrara a couple other thoughts about that one it's hard for me to see most of what I see in a lot of other Abel Ferrara movies. And it, it feels more like a, it feels like more like an assignment that he took rather than a more of a, a more personal project for him. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I think he took it and knocked it out of the park. And in that way, it reminds me of Brian De Palma's mission impossible movie, which um, also feels like, okay, this is just yeah. De Palma taking a paycheck but i also think that that movie is fantastic and one yeah. of turns into one of de palma's best movies and i think that invasion of the body snatcher or body snatchers is one of ferrar's best movies ultimately um and it's yeah. interesting to me these these auteurs who sort of and and i feel the same way about martin scorsese in that the two movies that are sort of like well color of money which seems like a total like i I took this for the paycheck kind of thing, or I'm doing one for the studio and one for me. I love right. the color of money. So do I. Yeah. And after hours, which wasn't something that he, you know, was something that was sort of thrown his way at the last minute. Um, is, is, is maybe my favorite Scorsese movie. So after hours is great. You know, I mean, he had a lot to prove on after hours. His career mm-hmm. was in the toilet. Right. So I mean, whether or not he sees it as a key, as a key work, it is, you know, and, and as something that, he can get down there and make a low budget movie and, and a comedy. Yeah. You know, I mean, the thing that makes all these versions that we're talking about of 
Body Snatchers great is that they they are all by at some level or another auteurs and they all they the 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 story and the idea itself is slippery enough that that their personalities can come through and and you can see Ferrara maybe taking it for a paycheck but once it's in his hands you got to imagine that he saw the possibilities and could put his own concerns in there and this is coming right after the Gulf War there's a lot of that stuff in there well I'm going to read the Jack Finney book and next time we talk I'll I'll weigh in on <laughs> yeah I'd love to at least take a look at the last page of that thing and uh <laughs> and see how much of a dead shark you got in your hands so this opened in New York and Chicago on the exact same day. How do you like that? They had finally gotten their act together by Saturday. I like it. And they were releasing stuff nationally. And that was Friday, December 22nd, 1978. So this was a big Christmas movie. Christmas in movie, fact, yeah. In fact, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gene Siskel reviewed it and said entertaining invasion helps save a season so he's in like his whole thing was like this is the worst fucking christmas for movies that i've ever seen but finally here's a movie that's entertaining and right right he did say that kale kale said it was the best movie of the year yes and in fact when i was looking at the new york times and reading janet maslin's review which is kind of okay but Funny in that she says she says, "Invasion of the Body Snatchers" recalls Nicholas Rogue's "Don't Look Now" in its intimations of cool, constant peril, and it also suggests Alan Pakula's "The Parallax View." And like the Parallax View, Mr. Kaufman's film climaxes on a split-level set to emphasize a running element of duplicity. Well, I don't know about that mm-hmm. running element mm-hmm. of duplicity, but it is kind of <laughs> funny that she noticed the same thing about him being up on a catwalk. Um. But I will disagree with Janet, who says the following. Uh, Leonard Nimoy isn't right for the role. He isn't funny enough. And besides, in a movie like this, it's much too easy to figure out which side he's on. Hmm. No, she's just looking at it the wrong way. She's totally Exactly right. when does he turn? Right. Exactly. Is he, is he one at the, at, the, at the book signing? I, I think I that's know. a good question. Right. I think he could be, have already turned by the time we meet him in this movie. Right. Yeah. That's part of the fun of this movie is trying to figure out who is like that that guy reading the the Russian novel in the uh in the mud bath. Yeah. Is Mr. he one Gianni. or is he is yeah, is he one or is he just a dude is he just a nerd sitting around reading Russian novels? You know, you can't tell because they're that, that's one of those things you can't tell the difference. Pod yeah. A pod nerd is the same as a non-pod nerd. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we are two pod nerds right now. Yeah, here we are. Podcasts. Uh, so here's what else was playing that day in New York. Uh, a movie that I've never seen, but really need to catch up to at some point. California Sweet. It's got such an amazing reputation. What are you guessing? California Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> California Sweet. Now, Moment by Moment with Lily Tomlin and John Travolta. Oh, my God. You've never seen this one, huh? I, I think I saw a couple minutes of it, like in the theater, because I was wandering through, like waiting for something else to start. But I've I love it because they down. have this. John Travolta and Lily Tomlin have the exact same haircut. It's it's yeah. amazing. Um, 
So the ad for Invasion of the Body Snatchers in that day's New York Times was a two-page, full two-page spread, and the whole thing was the Pauline Kael write-up from The New Yorker. (laughs) And she says, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is more sheer fun than any movie I've seen since Carrie and Jaws and maybe parts of The Spy Who Loved Me, which seems like, huh, where'd that one come from, Pauline? Wow. (laughs) The scriptwriter, W.D., Rick Richter supplies some of the funniest lines ever heard from the screen. This is Pauline Kael in 1978 saying that W.D. Richter wrote, has written some of the funniest lines ever heard from the screen. Wild. Yeah. She doesn't usually say a average movie <laughs> is the greatest movie ever made. That's not something she would do. No. Uh, uh, and the director, Phil Kaufman provides such confident professionalism that you sit back in the assurance that every spooky nuance you're catching is just what was intended. It's a wonderful relief to see a movie made by people who know what they're doing. Yeah. She's not wrong. No, she goes on for like 2,000 more words. Of course. You know, apparently she was a big Veronica Cartwright fan and she would always... uh, single her out in what movie she, she whatever movie she was in for special praise and she invited veronica out for drinks to talk when she was in new york and at a certain point veronica was like all right you know I've, i'm having problems with my boyfriend she's like come to a screening with me pauline kale was and she's like nah i can't so she begged off and said she had to go home and apparently after that pauline kale never pointed her out in a review ever again. Like, we just say that she was in it and that was it. Like, she was not, she was not a, she was not an unvindictive person. Is that, did you learn that? I know there's this Pauline Kale documentary on Amazon or something. Is that part of that? No, that wasn't in the, that was part of a a book about her Hmm. that, that she didn't write, but somebody else had written about her. I love that you in Zion, Illinois, were were reading Pauline Kael back in the seventies from the you said from the library. The library, yeah. Were you reading issues of the New Yorker? Or were you reading her like collected? I think books? I was reading like the film comment was something that I was reading a lot, uh, and so it, th- there was that she had that book. Uh, I lost it at the movie. That's right. Yeah. So I read that a lot. Um, but you know, a, a lot of, a, a lot of stuff, I don't know if I was reading, I had to have been reading the New Yorker. Yeah. They had all that stuff. They had the New Yorker, they had film, film comment and Rolling Stone was things that I would read out of. Yeah. That's cool, man. That's like an interesting choice that you made. Yeah. There you go. That happened. Uh, Brass Target was playing. You know that movie? I do. Any thoughts on it? I don't no. think I've ever seen it. No. It's one of those movies that's got like the whole cast in square boxes at but the I, bottom of the... I love that. And... Like Bear Island. You ever see Bear Island? Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Uh, all New Wilderness Family Part 2. Oh. I'll bet you I saw playing. that. I finally caught up to The Wilderness Family, the first one. Uh, this past year because Mike and I were uh, hired to do a commentary track for a Blu-ray release of this movie called um, 
High Risk. Uh-huh. With James Berlin from like 1980, maybe. Um, and it was the director of that, this guy Stuart Raffle, had also directed uh, at least the first Wilderness, maybe all of the Wilderness Family movies. And so I was diving into his career. And he also directed Tammy and the T-Rex. Have you ever seen that? I, yeah, we, I've tried. I've tried. Yeah. I, 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 I get it. One of these days, probably not. What, yeah. Did he... Uh, what was that other movie that was a wilderness family? Movie? Oh, it was um, Mountain Family Robinson. Yeah. Did he do Swiss that? Family, one? Swiss Family Robinson wasn't but it, it called was, Swiss Family? It was called Mountain. Oh, but it was a different family. one. It was called Mountain oh, really? Family Robinson. So oh, it was like geez. Swiss Family Robinson, but it was uh. <laughs> in the mountains. This family they they couldn't take living in the city anymore among uh, other people, so they decided to go live in the wilderness. I think that's Adventures of the Wilderness Family, but probably under a different. They probably named it differently every couple of years when they re-release it, because that's the same exact plot. It's the same thing. Yeah. God, why why did they do that? I don't know. But yeah, you're right. California Suite was in theaters that day. Yes, on the uh, Siskel and Ebert episode that they review uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, they also review California Suite and uh, uh, Every Which Way But Loose mm. and uh, uh, some other movie that I can't think of. But but Gene Siskel goes on and on during the episode talking about how bad the movies are this Christmas. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's part of his... But he also does this thing where he picks out that scene that we were talking about, the noir scene with the feet, and he comes mm-hmm. back and he goes, well, there's nothing really special about that scene. And I'm like, I beg to differ, <laughs> sir. I beg to differ. But he liked the movie. He liked the movie, but uh, he thinks... He wasn't happy with that He scene thinks towards the end, it devolves into a uh, an empty chase uh, movie. Um, well, I... I think he's right. I think that the second half of that movie becomes a much more conventional sort of genre film using all that stuff. But I think that it, I think that that half of the movie totally works because the first half is so not that. Right. And so you, by the time it settles into being a more conventional sci-fi movie, you're sort of glad and you're like, okay. But I don't think I don't think he's totally right. I don't think it's totally conventional. And and I was. Watching that review, and I was ready for the the end of this movie to be a total drag and be like, all right, I get it. And I was actually thinking maybe I won't watch the last ten minutes or something. But but it's not re- it's not just chasing. And when there is chasing, Kaufman makes some interesting uh, choices. Like he'll take away the score; you just hear running, or sometimes you don't even hear anything. Uh, it, it it may be a chase movie at that point, but it's not conventional. Okay. Yeah, I buy that. Sure. Sure. Uh, <laughs> movie Movie was playing. Do you remember that one? I do remember that movie. Was that with Burt Reynolds? George C. Scott. And okay. it's like two movies in one. There's like some... Uh, I forget, and I just watched this a couple years ago. Um, one of them is like a prize fighter boxing movie. And not even, I guess, a parody, but it's such a weird... It's trying to do these two sort of old-fashioned movies, and I can't remember what the second... Is it like Grindhouse? Is it like a, a fake double feature? Yes, yeah. it is. But they're but, but much shorter. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like like 45 minutes and 45 minutes. Uh, Trish Vanderveer's in it, Barbara Harris, Red Buttons, Barry Bostwick, and Ryan King. Uh, anyway... That was playing. Uh, I like Anne Autumn Ryan King. S- 
Yeah, she's great. Autumn Sonata by Ingmar Bergman was in theaters. Yes. Um, what else? Oh, yep, Every Which Way But Loose, which I saw in a theater when it came out. Classic. Ruth Gordon. Always nice to see Ruth Gordon. I just saw her in something. Yeah, Where's Papa? That's right. That's right, Where's Papa? <laughs> There's uh I forget who wrote the review in the New York Times. We did where well we did you know we did Where's Papa on this show and I Whatever the review there were there was a review in the New York Times of Where's Papa from from when it came out in 1970 and it was like yeah, this is a pretty good movie too bad about Ruth Gordon she's no good at playing an old person. And I'm like, uh, "Okay." I mean, it's only one of the great performances in history of cinema. But when has she ever done anything but that? <laughs> I know, right? It's just, it's weird. It's just a weird, weirdness. Uh, her, her speech at the end of Rosemary's Baby is just one of the greats. He chose you out of, out of everybody in the whole world. He chose you. He chose you. Yeah. Uh, Force 10 from Navarone. Oh, yeah. Which is, I guess, a sequel? To the guns of Navarone? I don't I don't know. I never put that together, but that totally I, makes sense. I mean if it is, it's it seems like it's unofficial. Uh I finally well, I never had watched Guns of Navarone, but I did this past year. Cause I was on a J. Lee Thompson kick. because uh, we were gonna we were showing this movie called Ice Cold in Alex at at my job. Uh-huh. Which I'd never heard of, and I was like, "That's a strange name for a film." And then we were showing it, and then I was like, "I need to watch some more Jay Lee Thompson." He turned out he's also the guy who directed uh, uh, "Conquest of the Planet of the Apes," right? Which, so, uh, sort of, and that was we were doing that podcast at around the same time that we were showing this other movie of his at work. So I was like, "Fuck it, I just need to watch as many Jay Lee Thompson movies as I can." Yeah, um, and they're all pretty good. He did a bunch of the sort of end of. Charles Bond Bronson's career were J. Lee Thompson movies. Some of the Death Wish sequels and um, uh, he did that movie The Reincarnation of Peter Proud. Oh yeah. Michael Sarazen? Yep. Who always creeps me out. Uh, uh, the Last Wave was playing in New York. <laughs> wow. Magic, which is a movie I love. Was playing another great trailer. Yeah, that was Anthony Hopkins before he went, like you know, sh- uh, legit. I guess <laughs> before he became like uh-huh. you know, the, act- the actor's <laughs> actor when he was stooping to do, you know, sort of. I don't know, not trash. Still a ham though. Magic. Still yeah. a ham. Still a yeah. ham. Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke was was in theaters. Wow. What about and, Love at First Bite? That was probably the next year after that. Yeah, that was 79. What made you think of that one? Because uh, I was thinking that when Love at First Bite came out, uh, there was a Cheech and Chong movie that was out. But that Cheech and Chong movie was Cheech and Chong's next movie. Right. Called and Cheech was, and Chong's I guess next movie. Right. And then came Nice Dreams. And right. then maybe things are tough all over. Things are tough all my, over, which is my favorite. That's my secret favorite. Oh, my God, really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Dude. Absolutely. Now I know why we're talking. Yeah. Nobody understands that that movie's the best one. It's the hairpiece. 
It's the best one. Yeah. It's, it's so great. fucking great. Yeah. Um, Superman, the original, the first Superman movie was coming out. So it wasn't, it was in 78. Or was mm-hmm. it 79? It was 78. 78. Well, it was okay. the end of 78. It was like a Christmas movie, 78. So it could have easily been 79 by the time you caught right, it. Right, probably. Which had, at the time, the longest opening credits. Mm. And the cheesiest. <laughs> okay. Uh, Oliver's Story, which I guess I didn't even realize was actually a movie. The sequel to Love Story. Wow. Fuck. Can you no. imagine watching that? No. Jesus. No. <laughs> um, the Lord of the Rings, the Ralph Bakshi version, was in theaters. Great. And the tagline in that ad was, if you see one movie this Christmas, it should be the one you'll remember for the rest of your life. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That... Holy shit. Guess who did the music for Lord of the Rings? I guess we talked about this last week. Leonard Rosenman. Right. That's, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, these were the days where they didn't have, like, name actors doing the voice work. So... Like, there's nobody that you would know who's doing any of the voices in Lord of the Rings. No, it was all about Ralph Bakshi, you know? Yeah. You could get a movie made, and, and he didn't care about the voice talent. That that wasn't a thing, you know? I mean, it was barely a thing over at Disney, was star voice talent. The Brinks job was in theaters. I'm drawing a blank on that one. Peter Falk. Oh, and shit. It was, it's the Friedkin it movie. By, yeah, directed by William Friedkin, yeah. which is... I saw uh, that a couple of years ago uh, at the Music Box, and it was not horrible, but not, not, not that great. It had a really weird beginning, like sort of a uh, screwball type of beginning. And then it settled down, and it was pretty good. Yeah, but, it, you know, even in the poster, it's like sort of like... It was billed as a comedy. You know, like yeah, a caper. It kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely is. Here's I'm a movie I've never seen. He, do, he doesn't have a feel for that kind of thing. No. No, he doesn't. Uh, King of the Gypsies with uh, Eric Roberts. Did you ever see that? I've never seen that movie. I'm aware of it, and uh, I can't believe I haven't seen it. Yeah. I can't figure out who directed it. Frank Person. I don't no. know who that is. No. No. Uh, Animal House starts today at Universal Showcase Theaters. It's a good time to be alive. Grease was starting that day, wow. apparently, somewhere. The Wiz, which I saw a couple times in theaters and did not think was the worst thing ever. I kind of Wait, liked it. so you're saying this is all on the same day as Invasion of the Body Snatchers? And and a lot of these are say, not only were they playing the same day, but a lot of these are saying starting today. But I, sometimes it's like it might be that it's breaking wide, like maybe they were in one theater and now they're. And then also they used to do re-releases. This is st- we're still in the era of like there's no VHS, there's nothing, you know, so that they would every six yeah, months they would bring back a movie that had this played is Christmas. six months ago. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, Midnight Express was in theaters. Days of Heaven was in theater, so Brooke Adams wow. was all over the place. Yeah. Same time next year with Ellen Burstyn and Alan Alda. 
I couldn't watch that. All right. I think that's about it, man. Yeah, I, I mean, think... I, this fucking episode turned into, like, longer than the first one. You've got to edit these I've got to do down. some editing. I've got to yeah. edit them. Right. I think, yeah, okay. you should edit this fucker down, and I think we'll have something pretty good. All right. I'm going to leave that part in for sure, though. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, it's been another pleasure. Yeah. In a series of pleasures. Yeah, it was... Um, uh, it was fun having a reason to watch all these movies again back yeah, to back it really was so let's do it again soon and next time you pick the movie okay sounds good i'll draw out some ideas all right man all right cool